With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 21 years as a U.S. Navy SEAL and retired. He's done eight deployments three of which were combat deployments. He has received the Navy Cross, two bronze stars, and a purple heart, and is the author of a book coming out in June 9th called Perfectly Wounded, which we will get into the story of that. He's been called the human gun range, and John Wick has wet dreams about this guy. Please welcome to the stage, Mike Day. Oh, you can see I blush. I blush pretty, pretty easy. You already got me blushing. We're good. I, I guess we can wrap it up then if we uh, <laughs> bless you. The, uh, I appreciate you coming. I know uh, you just came from, uh, where was it, Colorado? You were up in Colorado? Uh, you're up in the Phoenix. Region. Phoenix, okay. Left Phoenix yesterday at about 11 o'clock. Yeah, and you drove through the night to make it here on time. Which, I did. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. So hopefully we won't, we won't keep you up too much longer. But uh, what is your most painful bullet wound? Um, I would say the ones that hit the body armor hurt worse. Yeah? They broke ribs. Explain that a little bit, I guess, for for the listener. All right. In total, I got shot 27 times. I got shot 16 times in the body and 11 in the body armor. (coughs) The body armor luckily operated a lot better than it should have. Yeah. And it it absorbed uh, 11 rounds, but that energy is transferred to your body also. You know, it stops the bullets, but I had four broken ribs and a contusion on my right lung. Were, were uh, all the rounds AK rounds? No, I got shot with a uh, 5.56 green tip. No shit. 9 mil and AK. So there was two AKs in the room. The M4 and the pistol uh, were traced back to an Army unit. Like they... Uh, Excuse me. That's right. So like they got uh, they recovered their weapons or, or took them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they had the dude's... Um, his LBE... His body armor, his helmet, his night vision goggles. No shit. His name was still in the magazines. Wow. Was, was his M4 a, and his pistol. Was that a soldier, an army soldier that was killed? Yeah, out west in Ramadi. Yeah, wow. That's fucking gnarly. Um, we'll, get, we'll certainly get into the details of the story, but um, just in terms of the lightning round, what's your favorite EDC in terms of, uh, of a pistol, generally speaking? What, like, what do you like to carry? Uh, well, I'm... Pretty happy with the way that one operated. I mean, that one took around and blew the hand grips off of it. Yeah. And 
Was that your SIG? I don't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get done the work with me. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm bleep that one out. Yeah. I've been trying to get them to work with me for a while. Well, we'll, uh, we'll give them a shout. Yeah. Uh, and that's a nine mil. I'm assuming if uh, if we're talking about the same gun, right? It was, and I. Uh, or I guess what do you carry? Is that what you carry now? No, I actually got a, a Walther. Really? In my back right Captain now. James Bond over here. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, it's not, I mean, that's what you prefer to carry day to day, huh? Oh well, you know the. Uh, I carried a Glock 19 around for a little bit. It's a little bit big and bulky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like appendix carry. Yeah, I've already been shot in the balls once. I don't need to try it again. <laughs> Especially uh, by yourself. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do they call those? Self injuries. Yeah. Self inflicted. Yeah. What? Uh, so, what's the best thing to, that, that's come out of this? Would you say? Uh, out of that that injury, I would say it's probably the best thing financially that's ever happened to me. Yeah, uh, tell, t- tell me about that. Well, my retirement's a bit a bit better than it would have been. Yeah, by more than half. Yeah, my education benefits for my dependents are awesome. Yeah, my daughter uh, uh, going to be twenty nine, coming up here real soon in July. No, April. That one's in April. Yeah, she's doing all my branding and my websites and stuff. So she's my graphic designer. Oh, that's cool. And brand person yeah well, whatever you awesome. call that i don't even know what i'm doing yet yeah well i mean everybody starts somewhere right what uh what does your morning routine consist of now now that you've been out and, and how long have you been out now <coughs> i got out in 2010 okay uh so for seven years almost seven years i was a wounded warrior advocate for socom care coalition uh probably dealt with upwards of 400 people some of the worst combat injuries to come out of uh Iraq and Afghanistan, and I dealt with a whole bunch of different diseases, ALS. Yeah. Uh, a lot of neurological diseases, probably because of the heavy metals and stuff that we're exposed to. Yeah. What, uh, so what, what does, when you get up in the morning nowadays, what is that? Do you have a morning routine, or is it pretty oh. hit and miss? It sounds like you travel a lot. Well, I just bought a new truck. Yeah. I'm afraid to fly my dog yeah. right now, but I'm, I might have to fly her down to Tampa this yeah. month. It'll be the first time. Yeah. So do you, do you have a morning routine? Mm, I really don't have a routine. Right? I just it just changes. Yeah, I get up and do what I want to do when I want to do it. Do you uh, do you live somewhere in particular now, or you just kind of bounce around? Uh, I'm going to be bouncing around. I'm getting ready to buy a fifth wheel, and I'm just going to park that in different places. Yeah, across the country. Uh, I, I dig it. I, one of my uh, one of my closest friends does uh, kind of a similar thing, but um, he was actually on this show not too long ago. But what were you going to say? Oh no, I'm going on tangent. All right. You didn't bring me back. Yeah. What. Uh, <laughs> I would like to talk about kind of where you're from in terms of you know what what your childhood experience was like and where where it all started uh, and what kind of contributed to, <coughs> to you joining the military. But what uh, ultimately, first and foremost, where are you originally from? I was uh, born in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. Okay, and grew up New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia Beach. Uh, joined the Navy from Virginia Beach. So my father was in the military. Uh, by the time. I was 12 years old. He was medically retired at schizophrenia. Really? Out of the Navy. So he was, uh, he trained me to be in the SEAL teams. The SEAL teams were pretty easy for me. What uh, What did he do in the Navy? Uh, he was a 53 mechanic. Oh, okay. And so being born in New Jersey and, and bouncing around, you, I'm assuming you bounced around in that first 12 years because of his, his career? Or? N- well, not a whole lot. We He was stationed in Lakehurst and then uh, Will Grove in Pennsylvania. Yeah, okay. And then at the age of 12, the second divorce happened. Yeah. And I moved to Virginia Beach. 
with him? <coughs> no. He was uh, medically retired from the Navy and lived the rest of his life until he passed away last year in an inpatient facility or an assisted living oh, wow. facility. So, how, how big of an impact? I mean, I can only imagine it's a big impact, but uh, what kind of an impact did that have on you growing up? It, it made me have to figure things out for myself. Yeah. And he was a terror. I mean, he's tied us to poles and beat us. Really? Yeah. Like uh, from day one? I mean, from an early age or was there a time? Early age. I, I talk about it in my book. The first time, you know, my earliest childhood memory is jumping on his back because he broke my mother's arm over his knee. How old were you at that point? Five. Five. So an incredibly abusive father. Um, when you were in New Jersey and, and kind of going through all of this, what uh, what was the, the family dynamic like otherwise? I mean, was it was there any normalcy to it or was it? Uh, was we it, thought it was. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it now. Oh, it wasn't normal. Can you uh, can you tell tell me like <coughs> what most days were like in, in that uh, childhood environment? Did you have siblings? I did. Uh, I've got from the original marriage. I got one brother who's about a year and a half younger than me, and then I have uh, from the second marriage. I have a brother and a sister. One of which was in the SEAL teams. Oh, really? Yeah, Sean Day. Oh, that's awesome. So he was in the teams for about twelve years. Yeah. Um, if you could going back to uh, just that kind of family dynamic, if you will, what what was that like? It was very chaotic but structured. Um, he would go offline and just beat on us for like silly, stupid reasons. We assumed it was all normal. What, like uh, what, like what what kind of reason? What would what would uh, set him off? There, there was a week where he told us, I know you're going to mess up. So he actually woke up and beat us every day before he went to work. We didn't even do anything. Uh, he's, you know, with a schizophrenic father, you have a whole bunch of fathers. Yeah. <laughs> you just we're, never we're, know which one's there. You don't know which one's waking up. <laughs> so you and your brother, there's, there's a movie, and I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's got Elijah Wood and obviously a few others in it but uh, it's kind of a similar thing they've got this uh, alcoholic abusive father that beats the shit out of him and they do a bunch of stuff uh, to, to kind of counteract it and get away from it uh, he's the older brother and, and he watches the younger brother and he gets involved were there were there elements of that where you tried to protect your younger brother or was it he just beat the shit out of both of you I, I did try to protect him I, I felt like I was his favorite so I didn't get beat as bad mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the case but it was, it was just pretty much constant. But we had dinner every night at 6 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, it was the one normal thing. <laughs> we had Sunday breakfast Yeah, every Sunday. What, uh, what Sometimes was there was containers and glasses and shit flying around, but yeah. <laughs> there was breakfast. <laughs> what, uh, so your, your mom, what, what, was, what was her role in all that? I mean, was she just trying to survive, or what, like, what was she doing during these, these periods? Well, my mother was really young. Um, and she had started dating a black a black guy, <clears throat> so when we were going through the court system, uh, I think the bias was pretty strong, and she lost us because she was uh, dating a black dude. Really? Yeah. That but like that. that they're play, still married. That played a role. Yeah. And I've got two brothers from that. Yeah. yeah. So, I guess walk walk me through from when you can remember until twelve. 
when uh, when you ended up not having to be around him? What was that like? Uh, well, my stepmother was pretty abusive too. Really? Yeah. So the the so chair- that's that's kind of where it happened. He he went high and right, got put in the hospital. She started having a whole bunch of people coming, hanging out at the house. Um, she was abusive. I I stopped it one day and dumped her on her butt, and next thing I know, we were living in Maine. But that whole time we were with my with my father, they completely alienated us from our mother. We weren't allowed to talk to her. Um, all the cards, Christmas cards, birthday cards, and stuff that I later saw returned mm-hmm. with the checks cashed. So my father was taking the checks. My mother was sending to us, cashing them and not letting us know. Oh shit! But we never talked to her um, from the divorce. So we pretty much didn't like her. We didn't. Yeah. We felt abandoned by her, I guess. Yeah. What uh, What was the the situation once? So you said it was twelve when your dad ended up. Yeah. So my mother, my, my stepmother, uh, went to slap me, and I caught her hand. I swept her legs out from underneath her and dumped her on her butt. It was just natural. I mean, I wasn't training the fight or anything. I was just tired of getting hit. You were twelve at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's <coughs> that's the same time that your dad. Yeah, he's dead. already in the hospital. Okay. So we get scuttled up to. Uh, live with our grandparents up in Maine who again we haven't met or seen since we were little kids yeah and that process was to get us up there so my mother can talk to us and have us come live in Virginia Beach and then I moved to Virginia Beach in about eighth grade yeah what uh, the the time that you spent with your grandparents how long was that just the summer just the summer because we started school in Virginia Beach that year okay did things <coughs> seem to normalize once you moved to Virginia Beach by comparison? Uh, oh, they couldn't control us. <laughs> yeah. We were coming from a house so structured that we were afraid to do anything sideways, moved into a house where they let us do whatever yeah. because they didn't understand how to deal with teenagers. True. So I eventually wound up getting kicked out of high school because of drugs, and uh, that's how I found my way to the Yeah. <laughs> Was that a case where... Uh, at that at that time, it was like you can go to prison or go into the fucking navy or what? How did you even make make it in then? Um, I had to get a waiver. Yeah. So when when I got booted out of high school, I went to a place called the Job Corps. Uh, it's a pretty much like court directed vocational and GED school. Mm-hmm. So I got my GED and a journeyman's license in carpentry, uh, and then tried their college program, which I didn't even last one semester. Uh, come to find out you have to be 18 years old to be insured on construction sites so I couldn't keep a job so I wound up trying to join the Marine Corps and crazy as it is a lot of people don't don't believe me but in 1988 the Marine Corps wasn't accepting GEDs really luckily yeah yeah no shit huh I mean I love the Marine Corps but I I know I would only done four years in the Marine Corps yeah all right, so walking back to uh, a little bit of your childhood, I am curious. Uh, one thing that I, I, I wonder about, from the time that your dad <clears throat> went into the inpatient clinic and he spent, sounds like, the rest of his life there, did you keep in touch with him at all? No, nah, towards the end, I tried to I tried to talk to him. Yeah. And I scheduled weekly calls. But it was like dealing with a you know nine-year-old kid. Did he re- even remember you? I mean, yeah. Yeah. But it was just a pain in the ass. Well, he was very, very visceral, very racist. Um, I mean, I had to talk to him like he was a kid. Yeah. It's like, I'll talk to you every week if you want to, but I don't want to hear hear you cursing and yelling about 
this person and that person and calling people's names. Yeah. So it was like trying to deal with like a overactive kid. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> um, was there any closure when, when he passed away or how did, how did you respond to that? Uh, well, that thing was a mess. I was, had too much going on in my life. I was actually going to go after the VA for this because he, he passed away in an assisted living place. Uh, the place wasn't zoned properly. Uh, there's 30 patients there. They're all paying, I think it was $3,000 a month. So that's 90 grand a month to live in this crap hole. And he evidently choked on something. Oh, really? I had trouble getting the police to cooperate with me. I was going to take a wrongful death suit against the VA. Yeah. Was it a VA-assisted living or it was like a, it a was, contracted thing? See, he was awarded to the state because he was, what do they call it, an incompetent. So he's awarded to the state. He has a fiduciary that takes care of all his stuff. So the VA, it wasn't a VA location, but the VA had to go see it and approve it. And I can't believe anybody approved that place. I got you. And then um, medications. 30 people in there, all on psychiatric medications. And I go to collect all his medications, and I ask for the uh, schedule that he's on. And they don't have one. Really? They didn't have a schedule for anybody. Jesus. When I pulled up, there was a dude yelling across the street. They gave him the wrong medication. Wow. So I just had too much shit going on. Yeah. I had to let that one go. How uh, how but, old was he? Ballpark. 60. 60, wow. Um, what was your motivation to serve other than, I mean, it sounds like it was kind of a, well, fuck, I'll take this if, if that's all I can get. nowhere else to go. <laughs> but, I mean, was there a, an element of, of patriotism or, or was it just really? I mean, honestly, no. Really? Yeah. That's, I think... I mean, I joined the Navy when I was 17. Yeah. I don't even think I knew what patriotism was at 17. Yeah. I Turned mean, 19 in buds. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, I was in pretty young, too, but... Uh, and nobody knew what the SEAL teams were in 1989, 1990. Yeah. So when you uh, went to boot camp, uh, you, I'm assuming you saw the uh, the volunteer video. Is that is that when you said, yeah, I'll give that a shot, or was it later? Uh, no. When I, the way you guys get to buds now is... Uh, Heck of a lot more competitive than when I got there. Yeah. I don't even think they would accept me now. And I was the same kid trying to do it right now. But we just went through boot camp. And in boot camp, um, they have a day scheduled to do the screening test for na- SEAL, diver, EOD. But at that point, you had no idea what they even were? No, I did. Okay. I did. I joined the Navy to go to the SEAL teams. How did you find out about them? Uh, Navy diver. Uh, neighbor. Yeah. Told me to go go join the SEAL teams before I got myself in trouble. This was in high school. Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, so he, did he play kind of a father father influence on you? Or? I hung out with his kids. Yeah. Uh, so we were in and out of his place. His kids were bigger hellions than me. Yeah, I think. So he told you about the SEAL teams. What did he tell you about them? He told me they're going to pay me to do all the stupid shit that I do already. <laughs> so I won't get in trouble for it. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> All right, so you join, uh, you know you want to join the SEAL, SEAL teams in particular. You get in, you take the screening test. Did you pass the first time? Yeah. There's only one day. Yeah. Or back then, I guess yeah. there was. Uh, I know when I there took was like it. There was like 50 dudes there, and only like 10 of us for all three programs passed. Yeah. There was like two or three of us that passed for SEAL. Yeah. And the other ones were for Diver and EOD. Yeah. It's, all right, so you, you go straight into, uh, into BUDS. What A school did you do? Uh, machinist mate. Machinist mate. Yeah, I had four rates in the Navy. Yeah. Machinist mate, switched to boatswain mate, to master in arms, to SO. Okay. Jesus. 
What uh, I was trying to trick the system. Yeah, trying to make make rank. It didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, in in terms of your uh, your your path, I guess. So you go boot camp. You go to machinist mate. That's what four months, three months. Yeah, I, I can't really recall. You know, how long is boot camp? Two. Two. Yeah. But in A school is probably about was probably about two. Yeah, I mean it depends on the rate, but uh, but I guess my my question is is you went from boot camp to A school straight to buds, right? Yeah. And then so what uh, what buds class was that? I started in one sixty six. Okay. And what did you graduate with? One sixty nine. <clears throat> did you get hurt? <clears throat> yeah. So from one sixty six, I was rolled out of there. I had uh, really severe stress fractures that were showing up. On x-rays. They didn't have to do the MRIs. Yeah. Showing up on x-rays. Um, I couldn't walk down a flight of stairs without holding on to a handrail. So it was pretty bad. And at what point of training was this? This was like right after Hell Week. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a terrible Hell Week. What uh, what time of year was it? Winter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go figure. <laughs> all right, so you get all busted up in Hell Week. Uh, you get, you, did it you rolled, rolled into 168. And then I have a... I have a personal indifference with an instructor that thinks I'm being disrespectful and he tries to get me kicked out of the teams or out of the out of buds by failing me on runs, even though I got a watch with me. I'm, and I had another instructor help me, but it still wound up me being enrolled graduation week. Oh, really? From 168. No shit. Uh, back in, into 169, and they started me off at Dreger phase again. No shit. Well, at least I didn't have to go back to, well, pool comp wasn't that bad for me. Yeah. I could hold my breath forever back then. Yeah. So the, uh, for those of you listening, uh, some of these things may not make a ton of sense. Pool comp, we've talked about it on a couple episodes, but it's a really rough exercise where uh, you're, you're almost drowned, really. I mean, that, or, or the potential for being drowned. A lot of guys do end up, uh, you know, almost drowning or partially drowning, but it's basically where you're you're wearing twin eighties. You're crawling around on the ground, and the sharks and, come get you. Yeah, and they, the instructors <laughs> come down and and basically just hammer the shit out of you and take your mouthpiece out and and uh, tie it in knots and whip your ass. And you gotta you gotta unfuck it in a certain order to to be able to pass. It's a pretty pretty tough exercise, but um, th- that's now. I mean, was was uh, dive phase third that was phase third? Yeah. yeah. So back when when Mike went through. Uh, first phase was basic conditioning. Second phase was land warfare. Third was dive. Now it's second phase is dive phase. Third phase is land warfare. That's how it was uh, when I went through. But uh, at any rate, they switched it because dive phase was the second highest attrition. Yeah, no one fails out of land warfare. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of a just clarification there for uh, for the listener. But uh, all right, so you get rolled. You have to go through dive phase again after pool comp or do you don't have to go through pool comp again no i just start off uh start off at drager which means i had to do the 14 mile run again and that seven mile swim yeah which i thought was the hardest single evolution the the swim yeah seven mile swim yeah for sure it was no joke um what uh so the instructor that that uh kind of had it out for you or whatever uh, looking back on it now, I mean, do you, do you still feel that way, or have you made amends with him? Did you ever did you ever meet him? Nah, after that? it's probably better I don't use his name on here. But he's, yeah. he's not a very well liked individual. He was yeah, the, I got you. he was the dive phase officer at the time. He was the lieutenant. Oh, okay. Um, I like I like humble people. Yeah, <laughs> he's far from it. Yeah, 
I'm trying. And he doesn't know he's stupid. He doesn't <laughs> know. He doesn't know people don't trust him. Yeah, it's the worst kind, right? <laughs> um, all right. So you uh, you get rolled. You end up making it through with one six nine. What? Uh, wh- where did you go after that? Obviously to, to uh, Fort Benning and jump school, uh, right? But then yeah, drove out to jump school with a buddy named Chip Bannon. Yeah, and yeah. an orange T top Trans Am. <laughs> That's some classic <laughs> '80s shit right there. Yeah, it was fun car. Uh, what, so we went to uh, Benning. Yeah. So Fort Benning Jump School, you complete that. And then what, what team did you go to? Uh, three. Okay. Uh, so, so were you at three uh, from, like, well, to talk about the first uh, the first push at Team 3, was it five years? Uh, no, almost almost seven. Okay. I did four platoons there. And from, that was from? Uh, 90 to 97. Okay. And so then I went to the jump team. Um you talk about the the four platoons you did there. Was I mean that's largely peacetime, other than maybe a Kosovo one, right? Uh, that wasn't Kosovo. That was that was all during Gulf War. I didn't get over there during the Gulf War because it only lasted what twenty eight days. Yeah. And uh, old Schwarzkopf didn't much care for us anyway. Yeah. It, w- it was funny the missions that the SEALs were doing in in the, during the Gulf War. Yeah. Deep water mount uh, countermine measures, and uh, they did some some kind of historical stuff. They did that that false bombing on the beach to yeah. make it look like they were coming in from a different location. Uh, a hydrographic reconnaissance, and the three and a half fathom mark was was two and a half nautical miles away. Yeah, Jesus, what, that's when we had thirteen pound uh, man packs yeah. that were GPSs for, uh, and they had to float them on boogie boards. <laughs> so this is for. Uh, recon- reconnaissance of the beach. Yeah, they did a no shit uh, hydro recon team five guys. This is during the first Gulf War. Yeah, yeah. But the three and a half fathom mark where we start at was two and a half nautical miles out. Which for the listener is how deep? Uh, that's what twenty one <coughs> feet. The, is uh, my math still right? <laughs> fuck, I hope so. Knots, miles, yeah. three and a half fathoms. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but so for your time at Team Three, you you uh, you didn't end up going to the first Gulf War. What were those four deployments like? Uh, the first one was the Philippines, so I did a bunch of Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, Korea, uh, Japan. I uh, went to Singapore, and then the uh, the last three were peacetime middle east deployments yeah so just doing like cross training with yeah it was six months a month in each country with the last stop usually being bahrain yeah a lot of those places are a lot different uh, haven't what's the place that built all those islands uh, uh, dubai dubai I haven't been there since they have done all that dubai was a lot different place when i was there in the mid 90s yeah yeah it's turned into i mean it's almost like the vegas of of the middle east in in, in a way i guess but all right, so you do four platoons and seven years at Team 3. You leave there in 97. You go to the jump team. Talk uh, talk about the jump team a little bit. Uh, scariest job I had in the Navy until people started shooting at me. Yeah. <laughs> We'd jump into all kinds of crazy stuff. It was yeah. it was a blast, though. Um, did about 1,500 jumps over a three-year period. Uh, at the time, it was all SEALs. And we got to pretty much pick what shows we went to. Is there any that stick out as being uh, the, the best and the worst? I like Kansas City. The, like the Chiefs or what? Yeah, the Chiefs games. What was it about Kansas City? Uh, the fans are pretty awesome, and they have block parties, and they block traffic off and have parties out in the street during the home games. So we didn't only get to jump into the stadium. We got to jump into downtown, 
in parks downtown, flyby skyscrapers and stuff. It's, it was yeah, it was great. Was there a, a worst <clears throat> show? Uh, worst. I don't, I don't really have any that come to mind. I landed off once. I was supposed to land on a pier in San Diego. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, I was the only one that landed in the water. Everybody else landed on the pier. <laughs> How much shit did you get for uh, for that? Oh, well, it, you catch a lot of shit in the SEAL teams for everything. Yeah. So. But, I mean, that's like epic fucking. Well, that and, the, and then I fried the AAD. And the rigger's got to clean all that stuff up. So it cost me a nice bottle of booze. Yeah. Can Every you... time you pack a reserve. I've had nine cutaways. Really? Sure. So I keep it... buying booze for all these riggers. So on on the jump team, you said you have nine cutaways. Nine on the jump team, just six on the jump team. You've had three outside the jump team. <clears throat> I was working at Trade at until like five months ago. I was teaching military free fall for a while until I had I tore my peg off my arm. I had three cutaways there because my back wasn't working. Oh, okay. And I went and taught CQC in South. Can you walk the listener who has never parachuted or or seen parachute ops what uh, what that cutaway process like, or, or just pick one of your cutaways and walk us through step-by-step step what that is like. Okay, well, the last three were due to prior injury. I had two rounds go through my scapula, shattered my scapula. And I'd been jumping over the years, but not like I was with these guys. We were jumping four to six times a day for two weeks. And come to find out that my back locks up and seizes on me when I go to the, occasionally when I go to reach for the throw out. And then my whole right arm's useless. So the throwout is, it's called a bottom of the container. So you reach behind you, pretty much right next to your butt, and you pull out a hacky sack and you throw out a pilot chute. Uh, well, my back sees up, my, my right hand doesn't work. So I would have to cut away, usually, I mean, even on a high speed. This is what's called a high speed. There's nothing over top of you. Uh, so you got high speed and low speed. So these last three, when I was working at uh, Trade at, uh, were high speed. I never got my main parachute out. Traded as the training detachment for you civilian assholes. <laughs> so that uh, um, the first two times, I can't believe they let me jump. So just so that so that I'm clear, right? So you jump out, and because of your your injuries, you physically can't reach behind your back to grab. Correct. My whole back seized up, and my I could my hand wasn't working, so I couldn't grab the throw out. So you're basically just floating there, unable to to deploy it, right? Yes. And then so I was able to pin my arm and come up and actually cut away the main because you don't want the reserve coming out with an attached. Yeah. Even if it is a high speed. What, that, what's the difference? High speed, low speed. Talk, talk the distinction mm-hmm. between the two. A high speed malfunction means that a, a parachute never comes off your pack tray. And a slow speed malfunction is when you have a parachute over top of your head. And it's just but that can be ha- that could be fast, too. I've been in wraps with seven dudes, you know. And four parachutes are completely deflated, really? and the other three are partially inflated. I'm assuming that's one of the cutaways, right? Yeah, those those were my first ones down in Key West. It was, it was it was crazy. I was even on the jump team anyway. I was actually had orders to Buds, didn't want to go to Buds, and just kind of ran into the uh, jump team having tryouts. I only had 30 jumps, maybe 32 jumps. Yeah. When I, when I tried out, I didn't think I was going to make it. I just wanted to jump those parachutes. We got 50 jumps. But I got wound up getting picked up for the team, so did that for three years. Yeah. Uh, going back to uh, the, the cutaway process, I guess, what's – for you, I mean, even having been through it nine times, is there a an element of holy fuck that's going through your mind 
uh, while that's happening? Uh, no. I guess take 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 the three. Because, the holy fuck happens when you get on the ground. Yeah. I guess take take the three <laughs> out of the equation that are just from injury. The the prior six that were you know essentially fuck ups where you know it, it's a, an actual malfunction with the parachute it didn't have anything to do with you necessarily. Can you walk us through kind of the mental process that, that takes place during that time? Is it default to training like most things, or are you thinking about it? It is. Uh, I mean, when we talk about that gunfight that I was in and all these parachute wraps that I've been in, everything has always slowed down to the point where I've had plenty of time to observe it mm-hmm. and figure out what I'm supposed to do. Um, I wish I could do it with, without being under such high stress, but it's like I distort time when everything slows down. Um, so on the jump team, we do what's called canopy relative work. And Say that again? Canopy relative work. Okay. It's called crew. Um, it's the initial move to build formations under canopies to link, with, link up with each other. The first move you do is you take your parachute and you hit a dude in, in the back and he grabs your lines and slides down your lines. And you just keep building guys on top of that and build formations. <clears throat> well, in Key West, there's a lot of wind shears, and we were doing what's called uh, rotations. So you have a seven stack, sometimes more, uh, sometimes less. The guy on the top pops off the top and then does a front riser all the way to the bottom guy. And when he hits the bottom, the next guy flips off the top and just basic crew rotation. Uh, and the wind shears were just so bad out there that uh, – you know, 180 degree wind shear at 50, 60 miles per hour does funny stuff to parachutes. So, what what exactly happened then? Oh, a couple times we had to we were doing those rotations, and we we would do clear and pulls, hop and pops at like 12.5. Can you uh, describe some of that? Realize most of these people have no fucking idea okay. what you're talking about. I grew up in the SEAL teams. Everything's just <laughs> yeah. For those uh, for those so that didn't, a clear a clear and pull is when you jump out of the airplane at 12,500 feet and immediately open your parachute. And then we do crew all the way down. Uh, do the canopy relative work. Um, what was the question? Well, just, well, there's that and there's, there's hop and pops. Just realize yeah. that when you're saying this, you know, what you and I understand okay. as acronyms. I'll get and, better at this. You know, um, you know, most people are probably sitting here like, the fuck is he talking about? So um, the, the clear and pull, you described that, the hop and pop, it just again for somebody that's never jumped out of an airplane i think you know there's a lot that just isn't known and so okay pop and pop jump out and open your parachute immediately yeah and that's usually at, at twelve thousand five hundred. is that kind of the average yeah that was our working jump so all right so you're at twelve thousand five hundred feet you jump out and, and this this major malfunction uh you jumped out at twelve five and was that a hop and pop type of type of thing or yeah what? all the all the cutaways i had down there i had two cutaways on my first winter training down there we'd go to key west for a month in january and i had my first two cutaways down there yeah because of wind shears and so you're i guess walk us through you jump out and then what what happened uh like we were talking about earlier building seven stacks so seven dudes fly up they hit each other in the butt your, your feet and everybody else's lines guys popping off the top and hitting the guy on the bottom lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Popping off the top of the uh, the canopy. The seven stacks. Yeah. So there's seven parachutes flying. The top guy pops off. He flies all the way down to the bottom. Okay. And when he gets to the bottom, this guy pops off and he flies all the way down to the bottom. Uh, so it's like an elevator almost like you're like a yeah and when you're good at it you can take the nose of your parachute and you're actually clipping the guy's tail like your nose is hitting his tail on the way down oh wow it's almost like a pez dispenser right but the the margin of error is pretty i mean it, yeah. when you miss you get into a wrap yeah and so Which, when, and, that, and that's where your your parachute wraps with another parachute yeah and i've seen seven stacks turn into a big mess where there's Three, four parachutes deflated. The other ones are partially inflated, flying different directions. This so, looks like an amoeba. And so at that point, does everybody cut away then? No, it, it, it kind of works itself out. Usually a handful of guys get popped out. Um, by the end, it's usually only two guys that are kind of hooked up. That they'll actually and, cut away from their main chutes and deploy their... Or, or one. Yeah. Uh, I've been in a wrap that had seven dudes in it. Everybody got punched out nobody had to cut away except for me because my retraction system was attached to another guy's retraction system okay and we actually were having a conversation in a helicopter spin he was telling me to cut away i was telling him to cut away no you cut away it's like fucking top gun right (laughs) (laughs) like playing chicken uh what uh at what uh, elevation are you at uh in most of these times obviously it's between 12 5 and 0 but is is there a, a point at which the lowest malfunction I ever had uh, was at 1,500 feet. It was kind of scary. So you put, you uh, cut away at 1,500? I, I had to do a canopy transfer. Uh, my reserve came off my back in a formation at 1,500 feet. So d- describe that because I, I don't even understand that, I guess. Okay, so uh, we were in a two-stack, and I was underneath the guy that was piloting it, and I felt my reserve just fall off my back. We were already underneath our main parachutes. So when that happens, you either got to gather it up or when it starts to fly, the way we teach guys is when it inflates and gets to about shoulder level and it starts to come up, you can cut away and do a canopy transfer. You fall up underneath that, the main parachute goes away. Okay. Or you can fly both the canopies, which is just as safe. Yeah. But you cut you cut yours away or you flew both of them? No, I did a canopy transfer. And so what, what is that? How does that work? Uh, well, the main parachute goes away, and you just fall up underneath the reserve. When you say it goes away, you're cutting it away? Yeah. Okay. 
So then you're just under your reserve at that point. Correct. And with the reserve, the reserve is quite a bit smaller than the than the main. You're you're traveling faster under the reserve. I'm assuming. Uh, you are. There's a difference in sports parachutes. Yeah, the the reserves could be a little bit smaller. They're designed to open up from a standstill inside of 400 feet. So they open fast. Yeah, they open fast. And this is what you're jumping, the sports ones at this. Yes. Point? Yeah. Okay. I've got more jumps on sport rigs than I do on NT1 double X. Yeah. There's the military version of, of free fall parachutes. Um, was that the closest call you ever had? Uh, oh, there was there was f- like five events on the jump, six events. Two of them were broken lines. The other ones were all crew and uh, the one canopy transfer. Yeah. So okay. three wraps. We got a bunch of parachutes from, from the manufacturer, and I think they used the wrong thread. Mm. And we just had lines that were popping off parachutes and... Whole cells were blowing up. And. Yeah. So the jump team to me is, is kind of a strange animal um, in that I, I get the recruiting piece. Um, you know, that's an important component. But, I mean, a lot of guys have gotten fucked up over there. You know, it, it seems bordering on counterproductive from my standpoint. What What is your take having actually been there? And I'm sure you know mm. know some guys who have either lost their lives or or gotten mm. fucked fucked up to the point where they had to retire or, or what have you. Well, Jeff Smith is paraplegic uh, from the sternum down because he landed in the Jack Murphy Stadium on his butt and had a compression fracture. Uh, Tommy Marquis, who's who's gone now, watched that dude fly into a bunch of seats and rip up uh, seats in Qualcomm. And walk away from it. Tommy was one of those guys you get hit with a bat. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of injuries. But I mean, do you, do you think, like, looking at it from the big picture, that it's that it's worth having around? We don't. We don't need. Yeah. Recruiting into the SEAL teams anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's does the there's a waiting list. Exist? Yeah, but I think it's it used to be all SEALs, but the Navy changed it. They had to leave it open to everybody. So I think it's more boat guys and yeah. EOD. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it's like air shows. Like it's cool, but it's kind of like at this point, it seems fucking counterproductive. Like it's like it's more trouble than it's worth, you know. But uh, it was fun. Yeah, I don't doubt. There was it. nothing going on ninety six and ninety nine. Yeah, they used to call us the leap facts. I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you're doing you're doing a whole lot of nothing, just like us. So yeah, yeah. you're just doing it at air shows and fucking yeah. football games, right? <laughs> um, all right, so well, so from a, here's from a, a capability standpoint, though uh, we we don't do a lot of jumping operationally. I know there there are some. Do you think it's a it's an over practiced or overblown capability, or, or do you think as much time as you've spent under canopy that it's a, a worthwhile? They're bouncing that back and forth. So the metals for for us on the white side is just be able to follow a boat. Mm-hmm. That's all we have to do. Yeah, <clears throat> um, the metals. Yeah. What do you mean? Those are the. You could ask again. I shouldn't use acronyms. I can't remember. It's well, the I mean, mission, mission essential, something, something, something. Basically, a qualification. Basically, yeah. All right. They're like, okay, you will do these evolutions so that you can accomplish this mission. Okay. And um, and one of them is being able to jump out of a plane and follow a boat and follow a boat. Right? Yeah. I mean, to me, that makes sense. But because the white side, we don't use it to. Uh, do any other form of insertion. Yeah. And for those of you listening, the white side is the non-Tier 1 assets. In other words, not the, the Team 6 guys. Um, all right. So you spend three years at the jump team. You have a couple of close calls, nothing huge. Where do you go from there? 
I go to Team Eight, do a couple of deployments there. Talk That's where I did it. Kosovo. And how was that? <clears throat> it was cool. I mean, we were we were all. I mean, this is only only show in town right now. Yeah. Making sure my dog's not eating your wires. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll hear it. So we were, we were pretty excited about it, and uh, and we got to do some cool things there. We did a, a whole bunch of uh, special reconnaissance. Um, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of mountains. I left that place with some terrible hemorrhoids, <laughs> carrying that 100-pound rucksack all over the place. I am curious, having been to Iraq for two deployments and, and being as in the thick of, of operating as, as can be, how do you contrast um, the feeling more than anything? Just just the feeling of being in Kosovo. Did it feel the same in terms of you know when you're going out and doing things of, of the level of danger, or was it disparately different from from your feeling in Iraq? At the time, because I didn't have any other reference, it felt like like the real deal. It felt like the real deal. Did you guys mix it up at all with anybody? No, we almost got into a firefight with a bunch of turtles. Really? Eating our shit. <laughs> <laughs> and we were sitting on an SR. And it literally sounded like a squad coming through the woods. Yeah. That's a special reconnaissance. So you guys are, are... We didn't have night vision goggles. Yeah. You know? So it's nighttime, you're out, <laughs> and you hear what you think is a fucking an approaching element, and yeah. it, it turns out to be a bunch of fucking turtles. It was. <laughs> Wake up the next day, and the turtles are eating our crap. Oh, that's fucking great. Well, we're, we're supposed to carry out what we carry in yeah. right well that's well, that's one of the reasons i guess right <laughs> so yeah. don't get into a firefight with yeah. a bunch of turtles that's priceless all right how long were you in uh, kosovo for uh that deployment uh about four and a half months okay and then i got to do a little bit of ucom so you're so you go to ucom being european command what you went from there to to what germany uh yeah the uh, the unit was there yeah that was what was that two unit two yeah and so what, what did you do uh, in Germany? Uh, we just bounced around to a couple other countries. I went to Denmark, Estonia. It was just training? Just FID, yeah. Foreign Internal Defense, just yeah. training. Training with uh, foreign, foreign... NATO forces, other NATO forces, yeah. other special forces. Was there one group in particular that you worked with that uh, seemed to have have uh, your respect more than the rest? Like, was it, did any unit stand out as being uh, like, yeah, these guys are fucking legit? Well, you, you'll recognize in a lot of the former, former, former Soviet bloc countries that there's a lot of ex-Spetsnaz. Yeah. You, know, you feel like they're trying to ask you to, you almost feel like you're training like bank robbers. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, how do you do this? Like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> kind of like in Iraq and Afghanistan, you don't teach glass or explosives. Yeah. Well, I hope guys weren't teaching. Yeah. Meaning, uh, don't teach them how to use a scope. Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> or bombs. Yeah. So while you're in Europe, uh, were all the groups about the uh, same? Or no, that the group that I thought that if they would have been better funded, could have approached our capabilities because they were just that motivated. Was that was was it Slovenia? No, Lithuania. Yeah, the Lithuanian guys. Just they solid, they were hard yeah. dudes. Yeah. yeah, they just they got no money. Yeah, they got shit gear. Uh, but the motivation. Is there? I haven't, I haven't worked with a whole lot of other special forces that that I think are really worth the shit. Worth a shit. Yeah. But we always joke. I've always joked with guys too. We're not really that good. Everybody else just sucks. Yeah. No, I know it. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, it's probably it's probably pretty apt. 
The uh, so from there, uh, you go, you spend some time in Europe at the European Command. Where do you go from there? Uh, that's uh, when Tradet started. Okay, so training detachment, like so, this <coughs> must have been two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah, I checked into Tradet like three days before nine eleven. Oh, okay. And I got stuck there yeah. for a couple years. So while you were there, um, how, how was that? What like? Uh, I went in there. I ran air cell. Okay. A lot of jumping, uh, her stuff, helicopter rope suspension training, fast roping, just everything to do do with air. Yeah. <clears throat> That's where I started, but I kind of bounced around everywhere. Land warfare phase. Yeah. Uh, CQC. Uh, we didn't really have much of a south back there. Uh, I dabbled around pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Um, you were there for two years? Yeah, it was about two and a half years, and then I went to four. Okay. So you go to SEAL Team 4, it's post 9-11. Uh, tell me what that was like. Uh, well, I was very excited to get back there. Um, I was a chief, uh, but I had kind of had to do my time there to uh, get my slot, so I uh, did the ASOT stuff. <laughs> we won't get into what ASOT means, but it's a, it's an advanced uh, skill set that uh, that's really about all we can talk about. But uh, well, there's there's all kinds of crap on that open source. I just talk to people. Yeah, I, um, I guess just for the sake of I was a communicator. Yeah, I communicated with people. Yeah. So what I guess what was the gist of that then for what you can talk about? Um, well, I wound up living with an ODA team. Uh, team four at the time was, I think we had nine details. And the ODA is, uh, is Green Berets, basically. So, so you're, with the, you're embedded with a group of Green Berets. And I'm the level three now. So I'm the guy that's dictating all the, all the collection. And... Which, so that basically what that means is that uh, it's the, a higher level um, in terms of, of what he's charged with. Basically a case officer, equivalent DOD's equivalent to a case officer out of the agency. And so for that, you're you're directing to the Green Berets then what uh, what to do and how to do it as far as that goes. Well, I wouldn't say directed, but I was the one. I was only level three in the house, so yeah. they were it had to be to it had it had to be under my authority. Yeah, and it had to be approved by me because I was only one. That sounds like yeah. directing. I don't like to say guys work for me. I usually <laughs> like to say I work with them or they work sure. with me. You know. well, no, I, I get that. But, I mean, ultimately, you know, what, what is taking place is being directed by you because of your skill set. I'm ultimately responsible for what, yeah. for what gets done. And so where, did, where were you with them at? That was in a um, ODA house in Baghdad. Okay. It was a former Iraqi uh, Army colonel's house. Yeah. Three-story house. We had a swim pool in the basement. Um, we had a, a bunch of civilian contractors for security, which was kind of scary. We had a bunch of uh, like army reservists that did full time twenty four hour security for us. Yeah, I mean the place was set up pretty good. I mean, we had grenades and boxes in case we got through the front yeah. door. Yeah, you know, belt fed weapons on the on the roof. Uh, we never got into a gunfight in that building. Did you, did but, it seem like you uh, were putting that? Level three skill set to uh, to good use. I mean, did you did you make some progress? Oh yeah, we did. Uh, most of it, we wind up turning over to the people that actually own the battle space because everybody wants to work, and uh, special forces don't need to be going after a bunch of low hanging fruit anyway. Taking risk for stuff that doesn't that doesn't benefit or improve our position on the battlefield. Yeah, uh, Marines have a lot tougher job than we do. For sure. They walk around until someone shoots at them. Yeah. It's called patrol to contact. Yeah. To me, I'm, I don't want to do that. Yeah. 
I want to wait. I want to know where they are when they're sleeping and then kick their door. In. Yeah. And then sometimes they still shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> how, uh, how long were you with that uh, Green Beret group? Uh, I did that for five months on that deployment. Okay. So then you come back. Uh, well, they jammed me into, what did they call it at the time? Uh, instead of being in one of the houses, I had to be like the manager of all the houses. So I, I did a bunch of administrators work and got guys money and phones and yeah, to yeah. deal with the stuff that they had to. Fucking logistics guy, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I hated that. Yeah. That so, and my operation job are the two jobs I hated the most in the Navy. Yeah. How, how long were you in the logistics thing after the five and a half months with the... Just, uh, I think it was close to two months. Yeah. After that, did you go back to Team 4? Uh, yeah, I came back and I did my platoon chief slot after that one. So another deployment to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And is this where the the big story in the book takes place? Yeah. All right, so you so go back to Team 4, you pick up a, a platoon chief spot. So now you are the, the chief of a SEAL platoon at SEAL Team 4, and you're getting ready to, to go back to Iraq. Uh, anything in particular during the workup, or was it, was it pretty standard getting ready to deploy back? Pretty standard. I can say there was probably the best group of guys I worked with. Oh, yeah. Um, guys just seem to be more knowledgeable than they should be for where they were, you know, guys in their second platoon. Um, they taught me how not to be a micromanager. Uh, they, they taught you that, huh? <laughs> what, did they fucking haze you? No, nah, they would play tricks and shit on me, but they don't always tell me when I started the micromanage to get out of my back pocket. Yeah. Yeah, so like, hey, chief, get out of my back pocket. Yeah. I'm like, All right, don't fuck it up. <laughs> so a good, good group of dudes, no, no trouble awesome. with any of them. Yeah, I mean, they made my job easy. Yeah. And the OIC was solid, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was, there's always going to be some, some weak, some weak characters in the bunch, but yeah. we, we had very few. Everybody was really knowledgeable. I had E6s that had more combat deployments than me that were more knowledgeable than I, than yeah. I was. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, yeah. I mean, that makes they pretty sense. much knew my job. I was like, yeah, just let me, sh- tell me when I'm supposed to be here. Yeah. I'd like to take a quick minute to uh, recognize our sponsor, Origin Labs, uh, via Jocko Fuel. You know, this is a company that's been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. Uh, Episode after episode, they continue to deliver uh, both with the support of the podcast as well as products for the guests and myself included. Uh, I drink Jocko tea. I take. Uh, I drink a lot of the Go. Uh, it's been my my go-to. In fact, it's in this in this cup right here. Um, I, I love the stuff uh, as well as a lot of the other Origin Labs and Jocko products. Whether it's the Krill Oil or the Joint Warfare, uh, there's a, a host of other ones too that uh, that they have. They make geese. They make boots. They make jeans, uh, which which I have some some of. And it's just a, a great American-made company uh, that I stand behind. They stand behind me, and they've just been a, a staunch supporter of the podcast. So I encourage you to go to Origin Labs, Origin Maine, uh, Jocko Fuel, uh, and check out their products and support them because they're a, a phenomenal veteran-owned uh, or partially-owned company and a huge veteran supporter company. That's Everything's made in America, so go check them out. Thanks. Was there any element of, uh, like, I don't know, from a pissing contest or like a, an ego standpoint that you had trouble with having guys junior to you with more experience and, and kind of dictating, or, or not dictating, but you know what I mean? Like, mm. did that rub you raw or, or, you know, was there any insecurity with that or, or did you handle that pretty well? No, I did pretty well. Or maybe I, I should I knew, ask I knew that. what I didn't know. I knew, yeah. I knew my ego is not going to tell me that I 
that I should try to act like I know something better than somebody else when I know that they know it better. Well, because fuck, there's a lot yeah. of that. You yeah. know, I mean, I watched, I watched it and trade it. Yeah, yeah. I watched uh, leadership that won't participate with their guys. Yeah. Um. And they don't know that their guys don't trust them. Yeah. They're just fucking walking blind. Um, all right, so you guys get ready to go back over. You end up going over, if you could, walk us through kind of the, <coughs> excuse me, the start of that deployment. Most most specifically, when you guys touched down, was the op tempo, to, what year was it, and was the op tempo crazy right out of the gate, or, or kind of walk us through that, that feeling when you first got there? Op, op tempo was nuts from the very beginning. So you guys were super, <laughs> super um, busy right out. Yeah, so for the first two weeks, it was just a matter of trying to figure out who was who. Our turnover was terrible. We didn't have any good phone numbers. And what year was this? 2006. Okay. So, I mean, 2006 into 2007. Yeah. So, I mean, that's right at the height of when it was pretty much the nastiest in Iraq, right? I mean, I, I did 140 DAs on this deployment. Yes. We didn't have a dude that did less than 100. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. So, for those of you listening, those are basically raids. DA is direct assault. So, you know, if you're doing 100 to 140 on a six-month deployment, that's a, that's a busy right. fucking deployment. And then it wasn't just that. I mean, we were dealing with the MIT teams. Those were the groups. There was three MIT teams in Fallujah. MIT team is what? And uh, an acronym I don't know, but what they are is an embedded army, and they're usually reservist uh, unit that has an Iraqi um, group of people working with them also. So they take them on patrols and... Uh, so we were trying to advise them do that. We were trying to teach medical classes out there. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. We had our own little, I don't want to call it buds, but our own little selection course where we were pulling guys out of the second Iraqi and fourth Iraqi army brigade. Uh, when we first showed up there though, we had 50 guys show up, told them to do 10 pushups and 40 of them quit. <laughs> oh shit. Oh, 40 of them quit. So you got the good solid ten guys that can yeah. do ten push-ups. Well, geez, by the time we got out of there, people were begging to work with us. Yeah, well, that's cool. All right, so 2006, 2007, you get on the ground. It's super busy. You're doing lots of DAs, working with these uh, other army teams. Um, were there any any other operations during that time uh, that stand out as being, you know, either super hairy or dangerous? Did you lose any guys? Were there any any operations that you can share? That are that are noteworthy. Well, the um, the only one where we lost somebody was the one where I got shot up, and Clark Swedler was killed in action on that one. Um, and that was a turnover operation. <clears throat> we were about a week and a half from coming home. We were turning over with Team Ten. I don't know if you uh, know Jay or talked to Jay Redman. Oh yeah. But it was his group that was replacing us. Oh okay. Um, and Jocko was actually out west at the time. Yeah. And. So what are we working. Yeah, well, <laughs> my, my question is, you know, 140 assaults basically. Did all of them go textbook up until that point? I mean, were there any that you guys? I would say that one went textbook. It just was. You, know, you can do something. You can do everything right, and bad stuff can still happen. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, in terms of before that, because the the operation where you got shot and Clark was killed was at the very end of that deployment. Yeah. So for that entire deployment, can you share some some stories, some operations that you went on that uh, that were noteworthy? I would say I've, I've got two. Um, so over in different regions, 
in Iraq, they have, uh, you remember the deck of cards? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the number four, we went up catching the deck of four in Ambar. Um, I can't really talk about how we did that. We taped an antenna to a broomstick somehow, and we found that guy. <laughs> what was the... So, uh, but uh, no, here's one that I thought was really cool, because I felt like I was in a movie when this one went down. So we <clears throat> pop open the door, and I'm number one. And I uh, give a head check in there, and there's seven dudes with their weapons sleeping on the ground, wearing body armor, not body armor, but LBEs and... Their AKs are either laying right next to them or like across their chest. So we wind up getting in there and putting two guys on each one of them and wake them all up simultaneously. Pretty much walking out there. No shit. I still have guys ask me, oh my, why didn't we kill those guys? What? I was like, well, our jackpot wasn't in there. What was the uh, the, the premise of the mission, the, the concept of operations in terms of you, you were looking for number four and they and those people just weren't weren't them? Or uh, no, he wasn't in that room, uh, but they... We zip tied all all those guys up, and they walked us down the down the middle of the street to uh, to where he was, and we got him. Yeah. Did you end up keep like keeping those guys captured and turning them over to? Yeah, we did. Did anything come out of them that you know of? Uh, I know we had a guy that was supposed to be working the working the TIF, which is the where we bring the guys after we after we pick them up, and I never got any other follow-on information i don't think the guy was a very good debriefer yeah but i was i was doing all the debriefings out in town so we were getting follow-on information from them out in town yeah um you know they asked me you know why why didn't we kill him i was like well we wouldn't we wouldn't have known that our guy wasn't in there sure we would have killed all those dudes (laughs) goddamn coronavirus creeping up and then uh failed the mission yeah it would have been a mission failure but so with those with those guys, you turn them over. Nothing seems to come out of that. No, I mean you have to have a basically it's what's similar to like a warrant. It's a lot easier for us to get the warrant to go do these missions. Yeah, uh, you get the concept of operations approved, and you have to have a uh, a package that says this guy is bad because of this. Right. Uh, a lot of those guys were probably released at at the end of seventy two hours. Yeah, if there wasn't anything they could get out get out of them. A lot of those guys would be out 72 hours later. Yeah. And you'd probably be fighting them a few days after that. I mean, who knows how many times we picked up maybe the same guy. Yeah. It's like fucking Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so in all of those operations, were there any where you guys got into huge, gnarly gunfights? And, and, uh, uh, no, a lot of indirect fire. Really? Yeah. So it was, it was mostly uh, tame <laughs> in terms of the actual troops in contact or uh, fire. Well, we had one where we came around the corner off off of a target and there was three dudes burying an IED in the middle of the road. Uh, that wasn't really a gunfight. I just had Chad shoot the guy with his 50. Yeah. Shot him right in the leg, blew his whole leg off. Oh, shit. The uh, Rufus round hit him. And it was just the one guy? There was three of them. Two of them got away. We yeah. didn't go after them. We didn't chase them. Yeah. But, um, did they, were they successful in burying it, or did you guys blow that shit in place, or what? Uh, no, we just marked it, sent the OD out there. We don't mess with that shit. Yeah. All right. So as as this deployment wraps up, the the op tempo was high. Was the morale pretty high with uh, with the platoon at that point? Or it was. Uh, it was it was slowing down. Uh, what I recognize on that deployment that about four months at that pace is about all a dude can withstand. Yeah. <coughs> uh, the first four months. Uh, Because we got to the point where we had 
10 to 15 pre-approved con ops. And we were just waiting for the signal to go, just waiting for a trigger to go. And um, we were going out so much. The, the guys would come to me in the afternoon, like, what do we got tonight? I was like, well, I don't know yet. So we would usually get get word between 10 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning, and that's about when we would launch. You know, I, would, I wouldn't have to go find the guys the first four months. The sec- last two months, I had to go find them. Yeah. They, were, they, they were wanted to watch movies, and yeah. I mean, they were working hard. Yeah, four months is that's it. If you're working that hard, it's it's just too much, I think. Yeah, and and the bulk of these uh, nightly operations or almost nightly operations were you guys going out looking for high value targets. Yeah, like I said, we had ten to fifteen pre-approved uh, concept of operations, just waiting for. Kind of like the the mold pop his head out so we can go after him. Yeah, and a lot of times we would find other targets on the way to the one we were going to. Yeah, and pick them up on the way back. Uh, <coughs> and I would say more times than not, the first house you go into is not the only one that you have to go into. Yeah, was there any element of like the corruption of whether it's interpreters or? local sources giving you guys not necessarily bad info but but info that's maybe not completely accurate in terms of you know having a tribal rivalry that they just want to fuck this tribe over did you guys run into any of that i i personally didn't i trusted all the uh all the interpreters that we had mm-hmm. um I'll, i'd still hang out with boss if i could figure out where he was he might have got left on target that night one of the guys didn't trip over him he was so scared that he curled up in a ball in the ditch. This is one of your interpreters? Yeah. yeah. He used to put, like, donuts and stuff in his LBE. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make him carry a pistol. Oh, that's funny. So like, yeah, you might need it one day. Obviously a good interpreter, though, right? Yeah, he was great. Yeah. Crazy backstory. Uh, first Gulf War, decides to get an Iraqi Army uniform, walk his ass across the desert to, uh, was it Bahrain, and went up in an intern camp for, like, seven years. Holy shit. He hated the United States to begin with. Now, And the dude I'm talking about was a... Uh, uh, I forget, we did, he, he had a TS clearance. Really? Yeah. So how did, how did he get turned from hating the U.S. to working for you? Uh, well, he had worked for other people before us, too. Other agencies. Oh, okay. So he's very well vetted. Yeah. I trusted the guy. Yeah, I got you. Um, all right, so as this platoon, or this deployment, rather, is wrapping up... Um, and for those of you listening, when we talk about turnover ops or turnover missions, it's basically where um, you know the incoming group that is that is replacing the outgoing group. They'll go out on missions together sometimes, um, uh, or you know be heavily influenced by by that to basically turn over what they've been doing to the new group. If you could set us up by saying what this mission was for first, before you get into kind of the details of it. Okay, this uh, this target set was a, a cell that had shot down four helicopters. So that was the reason why we were going after them. They killed four birds and everybody on, on board. They were all medevac birds. Uh, we had gone after this target one, one night prior uh, with the vehicles, and we got ID'd. Really? And just the routes in there were just, it was too stupid to try to, Drive back in there. Yeah. So this crew uh, had had shot down four American medical correct 
uh, and killed everybody on on all four of them. Yes. Um, do you know how many people that was? I don't. I do know that uh, one of the officers in my platoon had gone to the academy with one of the uh, female pilots that was killed. Oh, really? Uh, she lived right across the hall from him in the at the academy. Oh, wow. Uh, um, so, I mean, to me, that's something that. So, yeah, I mean, usually a medevac bird, you're going to have four. Yeah. You know, the doc, yeah. uh, and then the pilot, co pilot, and then some kind of crew chief. Yeah. Plus whoever's on it. Yeah. If there's an injured. And I don't know that. I don't know if they were actually medevacking anybody when they were shot down. I don't know that. Yeah. So it's a so, unit out of Hawaii. Okay. So this crew that uh, was responsible for it, do you know who they were? Were they with? Was it Al Qaeda? Was it? It's Al Qaeda. Yeah. yeah. Did you know any any other information about them other than that? No, I mean everything turned cookie cutter. You know, it's a DA is a DA. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you guys are setting up for how did you end up going in? <clears throat> uh, we did a uh, we flew in, uh, did an offset, landed about three kilometers away, patrolled in, get up to the target. Um, we get word from overhead that there's some chatter on the ground that they might know we're there. But there's like two or three other operations going on, so they can't tell if they're talking about us or somebody else, you know, you know a couple miles away. Or... So we uh, go from hitting five buildings in close proximity to just one. Uh, we get up to it. Uh, breach team goes up. Uh, they pop open one door. It's a short room. There's no other access to the rest of the house. I'm the minimum safe distance guy in case we have to go breach. So minimum safe distance is we say MSD guy. I just stand far enough away from the explosion that we have to go explosive. And for, for those of you listening, talking about breaching, where we're, he's referencing using explosives to actually blow the door open so that they can gain access to this building. But we just mechanically opened it. Uh, it. We did find out that the more noise you make at the door, the more people shoot at you from outside. Strangely enough. Yeah, strangely enough. So a lot of times that door is actually open if you just try the doorknob. It's amazing how many are actually open. Yeah. What did you guys use to <coughs> reach a sledgehammer? No, nah, they they holied it, yeah. a holy tool, which is uh, another tool that like fire department uses also to pry open doors, car doors and stuff. It's a uh, kind of mixed between a sledgehammer, crowbar, and ice pick. Yeah, uh, pretty versatile tool. But they popped it open. There was nowhere else to go. They give me the call. Short room. I'm the MSD guy. I'm already on another door. I, I turned and did a donkey kick on that door that opened up into a small foyer with two doors in it, one on the left wall, one on the other wall, on the far wall, back wall. <coughs> and I am holding security on both of these doors, and the train's not splitting. Um, so Clark, who was on the breach team, comes from that initial room, does a head check into the room, sees that I'm holding on two threats, comes in, goes to the other door, the train splits, we do a barrel wave, and we... Do simultaneous room entries into both of these into both of these doors. As I make entry into the room, uh, my door opens into the wall, so it's a corner-fed room. I can see the whole right wall is clean, so I start traversing down the left wall, and I don't even come off my pivot foot before they're shooting me. <coughs> so behind me, my number two guy and number three guy are both Iraqi scouts. My number two guy got shot in the chest and knocked out of the room. Number three does he have body armor on? Yeah, it is body armor. And the number three guy got hit in the chest also with body armor, and he got killed in the doorway. A round passed through my door, the, car, the door that Clark went through, and it hit him in the back of the neck. So I 
wind up losing my rifle um, as they're shooting me and everything goes slow motion again like matrix like no shit matrix like I'm watching bullets spin I'm watching vapor trails I'm watching where bullets are impacting um, and what probably took five seconds from the time I entered that door to the time I hit the ground felt like a couple minutes to me yeah I mean the whole conversations I had to include asking myself are you getting shot Am I, are you getting shot um, but I lost my rifle as soon as I got in there and I transitioned to my pistol and as I was falling forward I killed the dude down the left wall and hit the ground right next to him so he's up against the wall I'm up against him on my left side and there's a window over top of us I start shooting around the room there's a dude that had pulled a pin on a grenade he was trying to run out of the room I hit him in the head he falls to the ground, blows up, and I, I get knocked unconscious. Uh, the guys are still behind me trying to get in, but there's still two dudes in the room with AKs sawing up the door jam. They can't get into the room. They ask for status in the house. I'm unconscious. I can't respond. There's three of our Iraqi scouts that had penetrated deeper into the house, so they were in the back, uh, and they weren't on. We don't let them use our crypto, you know, our radios. So they couldn't respond. Uh, so they decided to pull back and use the Spectre to blow up the target. The Spectre is a uh, AC-130 gunship. It's uh, you could YouTube it. It's a pretty badass aircraft. It's yeah. nice to have them overhead. So they help you out in that case. Uh, well, you know we we've come a long way with JTAC stuff. And are you JTAC? Mm -hmm. What's that stand for? Joint Tactical, Tactical Air, Air Control. Control. Okay, yeah. Because we used to not have that qual. Yeah, it's basically call, calling in close air support, which is something that we do a lot of where you know you've got some sort of aircraft overhead and shit starts to go bad and you can call them in to come in and, and fucking Drop back bombs. you up. Yeah, it's nice yeah <laughs> it's a good a good augment but um right. so they're pulling back and like i said we come a long way in the jet you can't drop bombs unless you've got a full head count so they obviously don't have a full head count i'm in the house uh clark's in the house three iraqi scouts in the house uh well actually four one's dead where was the rest of the platoon at this point? Um, they were outside of the house in the train. Wait, like waiting to get the... To come into that little foyer. It was a pretty small foyer. Yeah. So while this is... I mean, so no SEALs actually saw me go into that room. And that's why when they decided to fall back, they didn't know I was in there. Plus my my radio was broken anyway. Even if I was uncon not unconscious, the, uh, the radio wouldn't have worked. Yeah. I had to replace it out eventually. Um, God, you got to get me reset, Mike. So I, I transitioned to my pistol, killed the dude on the left wall, hit the ground, shoot the other dude with a grenade. He drops, blows up. You're knocked unconscious. Knocked unconscious. The guys have now decided they're going to leave and blow the house up. As they're exiting, I wake up and I re-engage those two guys. So at this point, these, these two guys are still... I don't know how they didn't get knocked out. Yeah. But when I woke up from that grenade blast... The two dudes were on the other wall with AK shooting over top of me through the window at the guys that were leaving. So, like, you're, literally, you're laying on the ground, you're unconscious. You come to consciousness, and you look up, and these two dudes that shot you are standing above you. They're about 10 feet away. Okay. They're on the uh, opposite wall. So, I'm, I'm assuming that they assumed you were dead. Yeah, and, okay, so there's two holes in my back that don't line up with holes in my body armor, and I got shot twice in the butt. And By, the, by your own scout? No, I, I think when I was unconscious from the grenade blast, they took the pistol, jammed it in my body armor, and put the two in my back, and then shot me twice in the butt. 
Um, I just had a bullet that traversed. I got shot in the butt with it. And it traversed over my hip, all oh, the way shit. to my stomach. And now it's a necklace. Can and I had, I had the guys cut it out. Yeah. Can you, can you show that? Hold that up again. Or you don't have to take it off, but just... Uh, yeah. i got to show you the AK round, too. The guys made a necklace out of an AK round that hit me. So this was a round that was in your ass? Yeah. That's wild. Probably need to... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. show you the pictures. It's pretty hilarious. That, uh... Yeah, that's so get to that gunfight. Um, so I wake up, two guys shooting over top of me, and uh, I re-engage them. And I think they think I'm dead. They don't know until I empty out the mag, first mag uh, that I'm shooting at them. So I, I run a mag dry, do a mag change, continue shooting at them. They start shooting at me. I have the magazine. I try to get them to give me the pistol. They wouldn't give it to me. They fixed it and put it back in circulation. <clears throat> but it hit the foot of the magazine, the AK round went to the foot of the magazine and blew the hand grips off the pistol and caused it to malfunction. And I can remember feeling the springs in my hands against my gloves. And I opened my hands to drop the uh, the uh, the hand grips that crumbled. And I did the tap rack bang, you know, clear the malfunction and I killed those two dudes with that pistol. No shit. And so they're 10 feet away. They, they have no idea that you're still alive. You come up. They eventually did. Well, of course. <laughs> so at this point, you've been shot. Had you been shot all 27 times at that point? Uh, I think the last couple probably happened there. Okay. My left thumb almost got shot off. Yep. But so you had a, a lot of them in, in your, into your body armor, in and around your body armor. I two. can't tell you which ones hit when. Right. But you but, got two, two in your ass, right? Yeah. Um, when you came to consciousness at that point, were you feeling anything or was, was it just adrenaline was like, well, when I got the, uh, when I gave them the report, um, you know, when you, when you give first aid to somebody asking, you know, what's, what's your self analysis, what hurts the most? And I told them I can't breathe. I thought it was a sucking chest wound and I, my pelvis hurt really, really bad. Yeah. Those were the two pains other than everything else. It just felt like one pain. I don't know how to. Describe it. Yeah. It just like the concussion, <laughs> grenade concussion made your whole body fucking hurt, probably. But I didn't really recognize it. I was in shock when I was up walking around. Because mm -hmm. uh, I did. I wound up getting getting up and walking around and clearing the rest of the house after these four guys were killed. These these four guys, if we can take a step back, you come to consciousness. You say you, you as you come to, you see them about 10 feet away shooting out of a window at your guys, right? Yeah, I'm laying under the window. Okay. Um, so there's wall, window, the first guy I killed, and I'm laying right next to him. Yeah. He's against the wall. And so 
Can you walk us through, like, when you came to, did you just draw on them and, and tag them both, or, or how did that work? Uh, when I woke up and saw it, I actually thought about playing possum for a couple seconds. Well, it might not even have been that long, but I did think about playing possum <laughs> until I realized how stupid that was. Yeah. And then got mad again and started shooting at them. Um, did, did you uh, shoot at them from laying down? Did you yeah. come up? So you just... I was on the ground. Yeah. The whole gunfight was from the ground. Wow. When the guys got back into that house... They didn't know I had been walking around. And when they found out where I had originally landed, they said there was so many bullet holes in the wall that you could see the outline wow. of where I was laying. Oh, shit. I am curious. when you So you start to engage them. Did they Were they so consumed with, with their own shooting? They were. Did they even, like, were they completely caught off guard? Like when, when you shot the first one, did the second one? I, I got a magazine, ran dry. Without them so, even realizing. So when I first came came in the room, I probably put five or six rounds into maybe seven to that first dude. And, and I only shot that dude with a grenade once. Mm-hmm. So I'll say nine. You still got, what, six rounds in there? So I ran that dry before I had to do the magazine change. And as I was doing the magazine change, that's when they started shooting at me again. And so at that point, uh, the first six rounds that you dumped into them, do you have any idea where they went? I mean, did you, yeah. get, did you get one of them with, with those six rounds or both of them? Oh, yeah, them? I killed him. I knew he was dead. Everything slowed down to the point where, I mean, I watched his eyes die. Yeah. This was all slow motion. Um, you know, in the movies, they show guys getting shot and it blows them backwards. My legs just came out from underneath me and I fell forward. Um, but I watched all those rounds go into that dude. And I watched it. I watched him die. Yeah, and that, that was just the first guy you did a yeah. bank change, and then engaged the second. Well, guy. that was just the first dude down the down the left wall. That was the first guy. Okay, but I, I but guess I did. I watched. I watched rounds hit. But I guess from emotion. Okay, from the from the time where you you lost consciousness and came back to these other two guys, you had six rounds left. Uh, yeah. And so did did all six of those rounds take both of those guys, or did you only get one, or how did that? No, work? I hit them a couple times with it each. Yeah, and uh, I had to do, put another mag in. <laughs> yeah, and so at this point, they're, sh- they're shooting at you now. You're doing a mag change while they're shooting at you. I ran uh, two mags dry. Oh, shit. On four dudes. Yeah. <laughs> they were making fun of me, telling me I need to go back to <laughs> go back to the shooting range. But yeah. you know, I, w- I, was, I was never really the best pistol shot. Yeah. It's actually harder to be a good pistol shot than a rifle. No, for sure it is. Yeah. But it, to me, it's just, it, it's amazing sitting here kind of visualizing you laying there. You start to engage them, you run out, you're doing a mag change while they're shooting at you, and you continue and, and manage to kill both of them. Probably about the time I left them, almost got shot off. Yeah. So did they hit you while you were shooting them? Yeah. Several times? Yeah. So I don't know at the 27 which ones were where. Yeah. Um, if they hit you anywhere other than body armor or anything like that, uh, no, it all felt like one pain. Other than just you know, the fact that I couldn't breathe my pelvis. Yeah. But, so, all right. So, so shooting stops. I asked for status in the house. An Iraqi scout, one of the three Iraqi scouts that went into the house, uh, deeper into the house, came in and gave me uh, gave me a report. Told me about Clark. Told me about the dead scout. Told me about all the women and children. Was Clark KIA immediately? He was killed. Yeah, he was KIA immediately. Uh, went right through uh, the side of his neck and just got that artery. 
Uh, when I found him, he was still smiling. He had a smile on his face. He looked really peaceful. Um, and the women and children were in that same room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found Clark. I couldn't move him. He was in view of the front door. That first Iraqi scout had put him on the on the front door, told him don't let anybody come through it. Yeah. Uh, got the women and children to quiet down. Found my last two Iraqi scouts holding on two detainees. I checked those flex cuffs. Brought one out to watch the women and children. And then I tried to make comms. And it's amazing that uh, I didn't know until like four, five months later when we did an after-action report. I had thought my rifle sling had been shot. I walked around that whole house with my M4 with a suppressor on it, banging between my knees, and I didn't even know it. No shit. But I could feel my earbud hit my body armor. <laughs> so when I went to when I went to key, trip. when I went to key up the bot, uh, the radio, I couldn't hear anything. And then I felt that earbud because I didn't wear ear protection. I couldn't wear those peltors. It crushed my head. Yeah, they're a lot nicer now. Yeah, I didn't. I wear I wore fucking foamies when I had them. I didn't even wear that. Yeah, uh, I just had that that one earpiece in. Yeah. But I had complete auditory exclusion in this whole thing. I didn't have any ear damage from this. Oh, shit. All the sound just turned off. Hmm. Uh, so you try so to... So I go to... Uh, I put the earbud back in. I key up and I hear a solid tone. I don't know how I got a solid tone. The radio had been shot a couple times. Destroyed it. So I had to take Clark's radio off of him. And I was having trouble doing that because my hands were so bloody. Pulled off my right glove. Went to pull off my left glove. And my left thumb was hanging my... In the palm of my hand. No shit. Do you have, is there? Yeah, I just can't bend it at that joint anymore. Oh, okay. Round went right through that joint. I don't even know how they got that thing back on. Yeah. I mean, it looks fucking pretty normal. It just won't bend. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of team guys got funny fingers. No, I know. At least it's not the, yeah. You got a buddy, his, his trigger finger's all jacked up. Yeah. That's an ugly shooting finger. Yeah. So you grab Clark's radio. Uh, Call the guys back in, deconflict the front door. Um, how, I, how was your mental state at this point? I know you were shocky physically, but... I I was shocked, uh, but I was completely coherent. Uh, I don't know how I didn't lose so much blood that I just passed out. My biggest concern was the lung, which was just a contusion, but it sure as shit felt like a sucking chest wound. Yeah. And there was two holes in my back. Luckily, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, reset me, Mike. All right, so you grab Clark's radio. You yeah, call, call him back. guys in the deconflict yeah. at the front door. I hear two mics uh, to the medevac. Uh, they don't know I've been up walking around. They say, pick up Mike. And I'm like, no, don't touch me, because I was afraid they would hurt me. So I get up and uh, walk out with one of the guys out to the helicopter. At this point, walking with uh, two ass shots, uh, could you tell, or was it just kind of lumped in with your whole fucking body hurt? I had no idea where it was. If somebody would have told me, well, let's go from ground up. My left leg, I had around go clean through my thigh. My right leg had one go in at my knee, about my knee, and ran all the way up my inner thigh and came out my upper thigh. I had one go through my scrotum, separate as deference. (coughs) The two in the butt. I uh, got hit in the stomach, had a colostomy bag for about a year, had a stent in my bladder, and that's how they found this bullet. I had to go get a stent bullet. I didn't even know it was in my butt until I got an x-ray five months later. Wow. Uh, four in my upper left arm, three in my upper right arm, the two in my back. Were, were most of those shoot-throughs? Uh, no. So there was the, 
I had. Well, these are. This is a through. Do you still what, have what, rounds in you right now? No, this is the last one. Okay. Talk about how I found that. That was an accident. I didn't yeah. even know it was in me. Yeah. Uh, Until I, last year. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> if you could keep going through the, the inventory. Yeah, so the stomach, um, my left thumb was almost amputated. I think I got it on the body. And then the 11 strikes on the body armor, which I think hurt worse. Yeah. So it was the most yeah. painful of all of them. All that energy. But luckily, just two bones. My right scapula. Yeah. I had two rounds go through that, shattered that. Caused some issues, but very minimal, if you ask me, for what, yeah. what could have been. Sure. All right. So um, you're basically walking unassisted then back. To the helicopter. Yeah. And then, Did the guys come in and grab Clark and the scouts? Yeah. They uh, called a QRFN. Quick reaction force. Yeah. I don't know what they call it. Quick reaction force. It took them like an hour and a half to get to them. <laughs> Not so quick. Was, and they and they they all got off target that way. So because the medevac and everything took up there. During the uh, when you're walking out, then how far did you have to go to get into the medevac bird? About 150 yards or so. And you, you made that no problem, or was it hard to to make it? When I had my body armor on, I felt like I had like 500 pounds on my back. When they took it off, I felt light enough to be able to move. Yeah. <clears throat> I did have, I told the guy that was walking out with me, if I need help, I'll throw my arm over your shoulder. Yeah. And I did. I was stumbling around in, the, in this plowed field, threw my left hand over his shoulder, and he reaches up to grab my hand, grabs my thumb, and almost pulls my thumb off. Fuck. <laughs> what, uh, the turn, this was a turnover op, was the, the turnover team, um, the Team 10 guys, were they on that operation with you or not? Yeah, one of them got hit. Yeah. Brand new guy, first deployment. Wow. Got shot in the arm. And made it through okay, I'm assuming. Yeah, he's he's out now. He's uh, went to school. He's doing, he's got he's got a nice job now. Yeah, good. Uh, all right, so you get you get loaded onto the, the bird by yourself, basically, right? With this, also this guy that got shot, he had a tourniquet on, so I didn't know. He was a medic, so I thought he was just there because he was a medic. Yeah. Did, was he working on you, or was uh, some No. The air doc was. The air doc cut all my clothes off. What was going through your mind at that point? Did you did you lose consciousness again? or No, I didn't lose consciousness on, until... So, at the whole flight, I couldn't have lost consciousness because that guy kept burying his knee in all my bullet holes as he was cutting my clothes off. I didn't get any medical care until I got to the hospital. They didn't um, do shit other than just cut your clothes off? Yeah. I'm, so I'm that, a little dumbfounded by that, I guess. Why? Why was he? If he's an air doc, why was he just cutting your clothes off and not doing uh, shit? I guess the flight wasn't long enough. I don't know. Yeah, I just know he was hurting me pretty bad. Did well, they give you any like uh, morphine shots or anything? Uh uh-uh. it, it didn't really hurt as bad as I thought. If somebody would have told me this is going to happen to you, that what I imagined would have been the pain was would have been a lot worse than it yeah. was. I mean, I can only um, imagine that the body's mechanism of masking that in, in interest of survival. Percocet's a nice drug, too. Yeah, but, <laughs> but via, via adrenaline and, and whatever, you know, yeah. um, I mean, I can, I can imagine why you didn't feel a lot of it but at that time. But as, as you're on the helicopter and things kind of start to simmer down a little bit, did, did it start to hurt more? Or, or walk us through, like, once you landed, what, what, you, what happened of what you remember? No, I remember everything. I, the only part about this whole thing I don't remember is Germany. I don't recall it. But um, 
So I met it back to Baghdad. And um, I see Chris and the air doc jump off to try to put the Israeli litter together. And he's got a tourniquet on. So you know, you need two people with two good arms and two good legs to jam that thing together. And I see them messing with it and he can't get it open. The golf cart pulls up and I know it's for me. So I jump off the bird with nothing but boots on. Dick swinging in the breeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good thing I didn't wasn't wearing underwear on that on that op. I might have got shot more than just a scrotum. Yeah. And so I jump on that golf cart and it wheels me over to the hospital. They throw me on a gurney and that's when I get the realization where you know how bad it is. Yeah. And it's like five, six people start rolling me around calling out all the gunshot wounds. Uh, and the last thing I remember hearing is gunshot wound at the scrotum. I'm like, man, I, d- I already had a vasectomy. Don't worry about that one. And I passed out. Yeah. Woke up the next day uh, on a gurney, um, all cleaned out in front of a C-17 to fly to Germany. Uh, I make the next of kin notification. Um, Which was, is that your wife? Or? Yeah, yeah. Tell my wife that uh, I'm separated now. It's yeah. Been married for 30 years. <laughs> uh, I make the call. I tell her I got shot a couple times and coming home early. How did she respond? Uh, I think it probably scared her a little yeah. bit. I mean, See, what, this, what, this, this, this event to me wasn't very traumatic. It was, it was more traumatic than people around me. Sure. And I didn't recognize it until years later. You know, my kids, they figured out a way to, because they never saw me get hurt or sick. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah, you're Superman to your kids. Pretty right? much, well, yeah, and they were very unimpressed with me too. So it was not <laughs> they don't care that their dad's Navy SEAL jumps out of airplanes and stuff. Yeah, but what they did see is I never got hurt, yeah. and this is the first time I ever got hurt, and I yeah. lost what 55 pounds in two weeks. Wow, it looked, it looked terrible. What? Uh, all right, so you you tell her she was scared, understandably. Uh, you head to Germany, and you don't really remember being in Germany. No, so. Um, a guy named Chris Till was uh, uh, the guy that flew with me out there. So we talked about that in the book too. I actually flatlined three times on the aircraft. Really? Um, we get the Germany launch tool. Do you know why? What, what was causing the flatline? No. Yeah. Almost passed away uh, at Bethesda too because of a pota- uh, potassium overdose. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't know you can kill somebody with you eat too many bananas. Are my fucking <laughs> All right, so you uh, you don't really remember Germany. I don't remember at all. Yeah. So w- when is the next recollection memory-wise uh, in Bethesda? Yeah, landing at the airport to be moved to Bethesda. From Germany? Yeah. Okay. And what was going through your mind at that point? I just... I remember yelling at the guys not to drop me yeah. on the Corman. It wasn't really a lot going through my mind. I just... I was so stoned... I don't even think about. It. I don't even remember yeah. what I was thinking back then. So they they move you to Bethesda Maryland Naval Hospital, um, and at that point, it sounded like you had a pretty long physical recovery with you know a colostomy bag and you know just all it was. Well, the last surgery was a year after, uh, but I was only in the hospital for sixteen days. Really? Yeah. So they just start discharged you, and then uh, they shouldn't have probably, but I kind of fought my way out of there. The yeah. initial, the initial. Uh, Estimate was three, three to four months yeah. I was going to be there. Uh, but when I found out that they had a list of stuff that I had accomplished, you know, walk down the stairs, 
uh, you know, different requirements for classroom bag. And when I found out there was actually a checklist I have to get through, as soon as I figured that out, you're checking every 16, box you can. 16 days later, I was out. Yeah. And from there, you went back uh, at your own home with your wife and kids? I did. I was there uh, and lived in my recliner for about three months. What was that like? Like the, the initial seeing your wife, seeing your kids, was it emotional for you? Was it emotional for them? It was for them. Um, was that the first time they'd seen you or did they come to you in the hospital? No, my wife had seen me in the hospital. My kids had. This is the first time my kids saw me. And I was, like I said, 55 pounds down. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of trouble walking. Uh, it was it was so hard just to get up and walk to the bathroom. How old were they at this time? One is a 16 and the other one is a 7. Okay. I remember her asking me uh, at one point, my youngest one is like, Dad, I didn't want to tell him I killed people. And she asked me where they were, and I told them I put them in prison. <laughs> and then the next question was, well, what happens if they get out and come after you? And that's when I had to tell her, yeah, they're not, yeah. They're not, getting, out of, they're not getting out of that prison. Yeah. So I had to tell my kid. And that's, and that's kind of weird, too, because she probably lost sleep over that. Yeah. You know, thinking about that. Yeah, a seven-year-old kid thinking about that. Yeah, what uh, what was the kind of overall reaction from the household? Was it awkward? Was it trying to get back to normal? What was that like? Um, you know, I, I saw my older daughter, and in fact, her her grades kind of slid. Um, I was in the mindset at the time that hey, look, this doesn't really bother me. It's more of an inconvenience. Why would it be bothering anybody else? Yeah, uh, but trauma does transfer, especially when. Uh, a life has not experienced or had to experience trauma like that before. Sure. So, well, especially when it's your dad that you think certain things of, and that you know that they're invincible, and then you see that happen. Um, so you spend three three months in a recliner. What uh, walk us through? I guess as you get out of the recliner, what what that was like. Uh, well, that's one. I knew it was getting better when I could get out get out of that recliner without waking up my wife because mm -hmm. uh, I was getting it, it was I don't even know how to describe it it would feel like I did like a half half marathon just walking 50 feet to go to the bathroom yeah just to, how hard it was to push myself up out of the chair and then just was that because of your weakness just hurt. physically or yeah. pain both both you know shot in both legs uh, I mean I had a classmate bag that had to be changed I couldn't even do that because I had Arms and both were both in slings. Yeah, uh, were the the wounds in your legs um, at that point? Like during that three month period, at what point were they closed up and and relatively healed? Like how long did that take? No, I don't know. Gun gunshot wounds are kind of funny. They kind of sometimes they start small, and as they're healing, they look like they get bigger, and then they shrink back up. Uh, but I would say I was probably. My wife had to pack 16 bullet holes with this stuff called silvidine yeah. every three days. So like a, a foot long strip, she'd take a Q-tip and just jam it in all the bullet holes. I'd 16 say, of them. I'd say, I'd say probably about two and a half months, everything was like just scabs. Yeah. Um, and actually the holes closed up. Yeah. Were were the were things between you and your wife at this point? Uh, was was there tension? Was it 
sympathy was it was it good normal for relatively normal how how were things between you and her uh i, I think things were pretty good but i think uh and i've seen this in other people too it's usually easier to be more critical of the people that are closest to you probably because they're they're spending more time with you but i i might have been hard on her i didn't like having to have people uh help me do anything mm-hmm. it was pretty uh i didn't much care to have somebody change my classroom bag and wiping my ass and it was uh how would you describe that i just didn't like it <laughs> yeah well, i mean that, that's understandable but regardless um things were still pretty decent between the two of you yeah I, I think so i mean we've we've always had a mostly good relationship yeah okay all right so at what point did you go back to work that was about four and a half months later and where and where did you go I went back to, uh, uh, we were teaching, we had the ASOT Level 2 course. So I went there, I was the chief of that, instructor for that for a while. The first time you came back to work, was was there a pretty warm welcoming? Like, holy fuck, dude. You know, like, I mean, I can only imagine people would have been like, God damn, man, tell us the story. And like, were you a bit of a celebrity in that way? Uh, yeah, I didn't mind talking about it uh, with guys. Um, it is, when I step outside of it, and look at it and I can step outside myself it is crazy I mean I'm I don't think it's the best part of my story but that part right there the fact that I walked away from that is it's mind boggling for sure it is yeah. are you a religious guy at all uh, I would say now that I'm a recovering Christian yeah I'm a spiritual yeah. I'm a spiritual being yeah um, contrarian I just don't know which, I just don't know which religion's right so. yeah no, I hear you <laughs> Um, did that play any role in your recovery at all? Did you lean on that? Did you think about why me or any of that kind of shit that some guys think about? No, you know, I never even thought I was going to die. It never even crossed my mind yeah. that I might die. So, uh, but I did ask, I, I did ask God to get me home to my girls. Yeah. It was kind of, and I would say it was probably a pretty sincere prayer to God. Yeah. Whoever that is, whatever it is, he, she, it, they, they, yeah. Ancient right. aliens. Yeah. All right. So you get back to work. Uh, I'm assuming you, you kind of slow rolled getting back into the full swing of it, right? I did. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't have gone to work that early. But I also knew that they didn't expect a whole lot from me. I mean, I was on Percocet for like a year. Oh, no shit. I was going to work on on Percocet. Um, the classmate bag didn't come off for like a year. Yeah. Did you? But, uh, I'm curious about the Percocet, uh, and that you know, there there's such a kind of a stigma attached to it in, in terms of the opioid crisis, if you will. Um, did you find yourself falling into feeling like you needed it, though you didn't need it, kind of thing, or or was it pretty? No, I got to the point where it, it did get rid of the pain, but I got to the point where I would just take one in the morning to calm all the all the stuff I just did to myself working out and then one at night to try to get to sleep. Yeah. Cause it was, it was more of a, like a, not like a, just an agitating pain that wouldn't go away. Kind of like, kinda like, like restless legs all over your body. Yeah. Do you still have pain from, from those injuries day to day? Uh, no. I mean, my back locked up when I tried to wipe my butt this morning. <laughs> kind of like when you, uh, when I, I couldn't open my parachutes, it's almost the same action there. Yeah, it's the ass wipe, <laughs> ass wipe action. 
Um, when you were coming off the Percocet, did you have any problems with it? It seems like a lot of guys struggle with that. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, but I did see guys that yeah. were addicted to it and wouldn't know it. They yeah, were like, man. you know, four-day weekends coming up. I'm like, Mike, maybe we should go. I'd tell guys, you know, let's go get your prescription. Like, no, I'll just get it after the holiday. And then two days later, they're having DTs. Didn't yeah. even know that they were addicted to it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems to be a huge, huge problem in our society in a lot of ways. I've seen a number of team guys have, have problems with it. But uh, it seems like a long time to be on on that drug particularly. But Yeah, but I was taking such low doses too. I started off early on. It was like six or seven a day. Yeah. And then went to two. Yeah. Uh, all right, so you get back into the swing of things. Um not not a lot is expected of you, which makes sense. Um, once you get back full into the swing of things, where was your mind at in terms of Navy career, like wanting to stay in, wanting to get out, shake shake that out? Well, I was supposed to do another. My next one was going to be to Afghanistan. Yeah, I do a troop chief, and uh, I mean, it just took so long uh, to bounce back from that. Uh, I just physiologically, my body was so screwed up. You yeah. know, go from losing 55 pounds to the gaining all that weight back and then getting just like super fat. And I couldn't stop it. So yeah. physiologically, it took me a, while, a long time to get that straight. So had they slotted you to go to Afghanistan before this and, and that was going through, or did they say, we're going to send you there after this happened? Uh, no, there was kind of was I was going to make senior chief and that was going to be the next role so but um, they, they had determined that prior to you being shot up yeah okay and but they they were going to follow through with that after it happened mm, no I actually made the decision that I couldn't do it yeah I mean there's no way I, I couldn't start the work up they started the work up as soon as we got back you know you had post deployment leave and then pro dev yeah uh, there's no way I could have recovered to be yeah, on that cycle again. So you went, you went to the head shed, the leadership, and said, "Hey, I, this, this isn't going to work." Right? That was almost my 19 year mark, uh, and the reason why I wound up getting out is because because of that level three skill I had, there was only like 30 of us at the time, and they were doing 18 month long deployments. They wanted me to go do. Yeah. So I, that made the decision easy for me. I was not going to go do an 18 month deployment. Yeah. Was that a hard decision? No. No. How how did they respond once you said go fuck yourself? Uh, yeah, I think that they initially told me, "Hey, Mike, you can do whatever you want. You yeah. did did your time." And I still wasn't recovered when they wanted me to go do this. Yeah. How so? Um, just physiologically, and quite honestly, I think I had maybe a little bit of trust issues with myself. I was like, maybe I'm not ready to be in charge of 500 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. Um, I was more afraid to get somebody else hurt, yeah, uh, than than me getting hurt myself. Yeah. Um, so once you decided to to get out, what was that last year and a half, two years like? What were you doing? Ops, ops at that Little Creek. So that Little Creek's a schoolhouse. We have I don't know, breacher, sniper, jump master. There's like 10, 11, 12 schools in there. Uh, I think so, we had like what fifteen hundred students a year coming through there. So basically, a logistics desk job for yeah, schools. Yeah, operation sucks. Yeah, it's a thankless job. Yeah. Everything comes across that desk. Yeah, but nobody actually seems to know that it comes across your desk. Yeah. Um, all right. So getting out. What uh, was it? Anticlimactic? Was it emotional? Was it hard? 
you know, for your actual retirement? Um, what was your, your mentality like then? I was nervous, um, but luckily um, I took a job a month before I got out at the SOCOM Care Coalition. So that job was almost seven years. I was a wounded warrior advocate, social worker, pretty much. Better social worker than I'm SEAL, I think. <laughs> um, I got to work with a lot of people, improve improve their position. That's kind of what I said my job description was, was to improve their position. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, VA disability, medical care, uh, dealing with nonprofits, uh, taking guys on trips. And it, was, it was a great job. Yeah. It was probably pretty healing for me, too. Sure. But I did it for seven years, and I spent the last two years trying to figure out how to quit. Yeah. What? Uh, so, why did did you get burnt out, or why did you want to stop doing it? Yeah, it was total burnout. Um, it was almost a twenty four hour seven, twenty four seven job. You know, even on the weekends. You know, I had guys I was assigned to that had ALS, so I'd go to the ALS walks on the weekend, or if it's MS walk, or it's a fundraiser for this, fundraiser for that. Um, I didn't realize how much I was working until I left. Yeah. You get to a point where you're burnt out on that. So now what? I mean, what what did you you say? Okay, I'm going to stop doing this, and then I'm going to do X. What what is X? Uh, it was uh, I went back to jumping out of airplanes. So I'd go back to working at Tradet and teaching military free fall and that, as a civilian contractor. Yeah, yeah. And that that's what you wanted to do, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, got to hang out with the guys again. Um, Two weeks in Marana. I don't know what you guys were doing when the air program's a little bit different now. And they have been talking about back and forth. Is it worth the money? Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, free fall was, was always a huge it's fun. carrot for all of our guys. It was a hard spot to get. But Well, this is what I think about jumping. Uh, there's a couple things. I think jumping, diving, and fighting all do the same thing. And it it's transferable to everything else. So... It's so high risk that guys are usually kind of nervous until they get used to doing it. So you have to learn how to manage those emotions. Just like when you're getting into a, a ring with a guy that you're pretty sure is going to kick your ass. Uh, you got to learn how to control those emotions and not hold your breath. You know, Because when I get nervous, I'm a breath holder. And I don't even recognize I'm doing it. No. Uh, but I do it on the bottom end. So I'm like, I, I quit breathing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I knew it when I was surfing too. I used to, when I was surfing on big surf, I'd go to do a, uh, a duck dive and realize, I realized I was holding my breath. I was like, then this, this does not help. Yeah. Uh, it makes things worse. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, um, when you, when you reference jumping, diving, fighting, et cetera, I mean, to me where, where I think you're going with that is. There's an element of, of our types of guys that get used to that and, and kind of need something that, that has that that edge to it. Well, I'm just saying it's, it's good for training somebody's, to teach somebody to train their emotions on on how to get through, like, scary shit. Because team guys do scary shit all the time. They're not completely fearless. I don't think anybody's completely fearless. There, no. there's, a, there's a handful of people that... Um, well, I think something is wrong with you if you're not scared of, of some things, you know. But that's what makes us different is yeah. that we do scary shit. We do, and we do it. Yeah, just over yeah. and over. So you go back to uh, the jump school to teach as a civilian contractor. You did that for three years? Uh, no, it was probably about two years. 
And did, was it that you got to a point physically where you just couldn't do it anymore? Is that no, right? I had those three cutaways. Yeah. Uh, the last one tore my left pack out of my arm. Uh, they had a job opening, uh, a slot for the CQC in South. So close quarters combat and special operations, <coughs> special operations, urban combat. So I went there and worked there for a while. And I just left that job like five months ago. Yeah. Now, now are you retired, retired? Yeah. Yeah. I sold that book. It's on pre-sale right now. Yeah. Um, it's not going to make me rich, but. <laughs> well, not with that attitude. <laughs> um, what, what, you know, it, it being as long as it's been since, since it happened, is there a particular event or a reason that kind of spawned deciding to write it now or, or what was your thought process with it? Oh, there is. I do have an agenda, you know, personal agenda. There's things I want to go do. Um, get to work on a nonprofit. I want to deal with uh, uh, some of the things that we've talked about here, you know, gut health, uh, psychological issues uh, that are driven physiologically. You know, that's something I found, uh, which I think is a great thing for guys to understand. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, we talk about a stigma, but a lot of that's internal. Yeah. And when you can prove to somebody that is not a weakness, and that's the stigma that guys like us, around us, are going to put on themselves. But when I can teach you and show you that it's physiologically driven. I mean, I had problems because I had uh, no good uh, gut flora mm -hmm. in my stomach. You know, went through a bad bout of depression, got suicidal, and it was all because I didn't have proper bacteria in my stomach how, how did you identify that a and fix it B uh, it was identified because uh, a lot of people knew I was having problems they wanted me to go do do a program and I refused to go anywhere uh, so I picked a doctor that was the least invasive dealt with him on Skype he tested my blood my pee my poo and basically told me everything that was missing out of my body which is all the B12 all the B the vitamin D I was just so deficient and uh, the way our bodies work, our stomach digests the food to break it down to acceptable fashion through the intestines. The intestines take the minerals and the vitamins out, but my stomach couldn't even digest the food to make it. Yeah. Um, so vitamin D gone, uh, testosterone was, was bottomed out. It's, it's what I think healthcare should be. Yeah. Uh, healthcare nowadays is just so reactive. Yeah, it was like here's your symptom. Well, here's your pill for that symptom, and the and the pill for the symptom that that pill is going to cause. Yeah, um, <coughs> without any regard for what is actually causing the issue. No, I agree. It's it's totally fucking backward. I think the um, you know where where Western medicine gets it right is in the identification of problems. You know, being able to through analysis understand what the problem is. Where I think they fall miserably short uh, is in how to fix that. And, and to your point, you know, it's big pharma, it's pills, it's yeah. medications, et cetera, where, you know, generally speaking, you know, let food be thy medicine, uh, you know, makes the most sense. And it's been around for millennia. Um, I don't know why we have to continue to relearn that lesson, but uh, but we sure do. So I think it's like we actually know it, but we're just taught to dumb it down and say, oh, that, that little bit of that. It's not that bad in itself. Yeah. But it's when you <clears throat> had 20 of those. Yeah. <laughs> what, so what, what was the corrective uh, action? What did they do for you um, to fix that? Did they just give you a fuck ton of supplements or what? Uh, well, not a 
not a whole lot of supplements. What I did is I took a series, like a week series of antibiotics, killed all the gut flora, and then we rebuilt it with diet. Uh, the only supplement I use is called green juice from Organifi. So what were you eating to, to rebuild it? Well, you know, a lot of foods that have probiotics in them, you know, cabbages. Uh, like kimchi and... Kimchi, like yeah. I'm not big on kimchi. Yeah. This doc wanted me to make this stuff. Yeah. Like, Sauerkraut and shit or what? So I was on a pretty strict diet. Uh, he also looks at epigenetics. So our bodies are designed genetically to be able to accept certain types of food. So I see people all, like in the teams, everybody's on keto. I'm like, how do you know keto is supposed to be the one that's good for you? Yeah. Um, so did he do like a blood test that said this is what your body needs? Yeah. Yeah. Who is this guy? His name is Dr. Anthony Beck. There's other doctors that do it. Yeah, there's a shitload. I'm just curious. Um, usually, uh, if you look up holistic doctors, a lot of them are going to be chiropractors. They understand the nervous system. Where is he out of? He's in Orlando. Would you say he saved your life? Uh, yeah, I'd say he fixed my yeah. fixed my issue. Yeah. Um, all right. So you're eating nutrient dense whole foods, building your gut flora back. How long did that take to go from knocking everything out and rebuilding it to where you felt like fuck? I'm finally back. Well, I can say half assed this. I didn't even do the whole program. <laughs> In true team guy fashion. And I didn't like him. <laughs> really? I didn't like him. Yeah, I yeah. think he's a cocky guy. Yeah. He knows he's cocky. Yeah. He's a friend of mine now. But um, it wasn't something that that I could like see happening. It was it was about two and a half, three months down the road. So I just woke up one day and it just felt like the cloud was gone. Yeah. And uh, I wish I would have kept better track of it. But you know, I thought that when I was at the Care Coalition, a lot of people were like. What do I go? What pill do I take to fix this? And I'm like, man, it took you how many years to get to this bad state? You think you're going to take a pill? Yeah. Like 30 minutes later, you'd be fixed. Yeah. You have to put some effort into it. Yeah. It's. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It's it's a neat story. It's something I uh, have certainly delved way deeper into over the last few years of of everything that we just talked about. It's it's super interesting. Yeah, um, they they got the a lot of that stuff coming out now. The uh, gut brain connection. Yeah. No, it's huge. Um, all right, so what now? Oh, this book's keeping me pretty busy right now. I'm starting to do speaking engagements. Uh, got one coming up here next week in Florida with Sikorsky, which is gonna be pretty cool. Oh, nice. They make our Blackhawks, yeah. Uh, um, get to hang out there for, for about four or five days with those guys, yeah. Uh, and I'm just gonna keep trying to promote my book and get working on my nonprofit, yeah. So the book comes out June 9th, right? Yeah. Um, it'll be available, I'm assuming, on Amazon and all that. Yeah, it already is. It's okay. already a pre-order. Yeah. Uh, my website's perfectlywounded.com. There's a link on there, too. Okay. Perfectlywounded.com. One, two, two other questions I have. I noticed uh, you took your flannel off. You got a, a bullet wound. Is that <laughs> where yeah. one of them were? Do you have... Yeah, Mike Martin did these. So do you have every every bullet wound is tattooed that way? No. or just? I didn't want to tattoo my scrotum. <laughs> Why not? Because <laughs> it sounds like it hurts. <laughs> uh, any on your legs, or is it just that one? Yeah, I did. Uh, I've got twelve of them. Yeah. Uh, so I did uh, both my legs. Yeah. Got some up here. The two on my back. Yeah. Can you uh, show this camera here? Uh, the ones on that arm again. So there's three. So Mike there. Martin, who was a famous yeah. Navy SEAL for us, just passed away last summer. Yeah, and you got one up under here too. 
Okay. Yeah, there's an exit wound here. I didn't tattoo that. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. That's, That's a pretty nasty exit wound right there. Uh, yeah. Do do any of the uh, wounds sustained still bother you to this day? I would say the biggest problem is the the, the back spasming. Yeah. Have you looked into having surgery to help that, or is it not? Yeah, I can't really do anything about it. Yeah, I'm, I've been pretty lazy. Uh, when I when I stay in the yoga and get, stay stretched out, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I got. If I would have been doing yoga for your whole I, career, <laughs> yeah, I like yoga. It's hard. Yeah, do you, I mean, it sounds like you do it fairly regularly, right? Oh, I've been lazy for the last couple of months. I'm getting yeah. some what's called skinny fat. Yeah. I haven't really been doing anything. Yeah. I'm dragging my dog up a hill. Yeah. No, I know. Almost that. killed her on camelback the other day. Yeah. One question I have uh, that I wanted to kind of bring back as we wrap this up is um, with as traumatic as your childhood sounds like it was, there's two two things I'm curious about. One is that you, you mentioned earlier that it made buds easy. Do you think that going through that as a child uh, and then you know un- understanding what trauma does to kids and developing minds but then now going through the physical and mental trauma of the operation that you went through <clears throat> do you think that uh, actually that childhood of, of going through that actually prepared you to deal with that better I do I mean when you when you suffer trauma and come out the other side that builds resiliency yeah uh, so you can practice to build resiliency I'm not saying go out and beat yourself up, uh, <laughs> take cold showers all the time, but if you only train to not be bothered by anything other than sitting on the couch and watching TV and, and eating donuts, anytime something worse than that happens, yeah. uh, it, you're not going to be able to deal with it. So it's something I think resiliency could be practiced. Yeah. Do you notice any uh, PTSD type of issues from going through what you went through? I don't. I, I did have an event uh, later on. Uh, I don't think I'm ready to talk about that one yet. But the, yeah. that did cause PTSD. Yeah. It was an event that I saw uh, that for like three months, every time I went to drift off to fall to sleep, I would see it wow. happen again. I couldn't go to sleep. Yeah. Um, last question. It had nothing to do with the military. Yeah. Wow. Uh, last question. I, because your childhood was what it was, um, how did that impact how you were a father, how you raised your kids, how you interacted with them? And, and do you think that how you did it, looking back on it, uh, was was how it should have been done? Uh, hindsight. Always twenty twenty. I was um, I had a reputation in the SEAL teams of being kind of hard-nosed. Um, they were like, Mike's an asshole, but he won't lie to you. Yeah. And I think I carried that same thing back to the house. I think I might have been a little bit hard on my kids. Uh, I wasn't a militant, but I think it probably took me a while to finally get the emotional bandwidth that I actually have now. Yeah. 
There wasn't a whole lot of emotional bandwidth back then. Fuck, I'm right there with you. I mean, my kids are younger than yours, but they're not young kids anymore. I, I would say absolutely the same way. I, looking back on it now, I, I feel like I've struck a, a much better balance now, but early on I was, I was harder on them than I should have been, you know. Yeah, my midlife crisis is making me softer. <laughs> Where's the yellow Corvette? Um, I just bought an F-350. I like yeah. that better. No, I hear you. Um, so in terms of, of the impact, though, I guess, you know, as you were raising your kids, did you reflect back on your childhood of saying, well, I definitely don't want to be that way? Or how, how did that influence you raising your kids? Yeah, my kids used to tell me, we, we wish you would spank us rather than yell at us. Really? And I was like, so you've never been spanked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They say that now or? Oh, yeah. They were, I guess I get a crazy look in the eye when I'm, when I'm mad. Yeah. But I, I never spanked my kids. I didn't think that was necessary. Um, yeah. I didn't want to because because of how I was brought up. Yeah. So my father was, was an influence on what not to be. Yeah. More so than, than what, what to be. be. Yeah. yeah. Any other things like that that you found yourself saying, I definitely don't want to do that or I want to make sure I do this because of how, how your childhood was? Uh, other than that, that I, not, not really. Not just really. just yeah. not abuse the people in your family. Yeah. It sounds like if your oldest daughter is doing all of your marketing, social media stuff, you guys have a great relationship. Would you say that your relationship with your kids is really solid now? Uh, I would say they're both kind of mad at me right now. I'm going, I'm separated. Yeah. Yeah. So I got married when I was 19. So I think this year would be 30 years, but I've been separated for a couple of years. We're trying to, I mean, she's been a big part of my life. Yeah. Uh, we're just trying to make sure each other one's okay and ready before we go off in our own direction. Yeah. So, uh, do you care to talk about, uh, you know, the, this in terms of why you separated? Does anything have to do with what you went through? Uh, might be part of it. Um, just my views, how my views have changed, and uh, how I've started to look at my own life and kind of figure out my own daddy and mommy issues that I'm dealing with. You know. Yeah. So, I've always been kind of a people pleaser, which which means I never really, I didn't even really know what my wants and needs were. So there's my midlife crisis. I figured out what my wants and needs are, and now I'm going to go do it. Yeah, and that's causing um, conflict with. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't mesh up with what she wants. Yeah. yeah, is it a for sure thing? Like you guys are for sure done, or I am. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So your your kids are a little pissed at you. Yeah. I mean, but your so your daughter's 29. Yeah, she'll be 29 next month. So, which means your son is in his early 20s, right? But my other daughter, daughter is 19. Yeah. 19. But either way, I mean, they're both essentially grown. Yeah, separated when she graduated high school. She's in her second year at Virginia Tech right now. Yeah. I guess, I mean, if, I'm curious, just out of my own curiosity, what, what the heartburn is, I guess. I mean, at this point, it's not like they're five and seven. Uh, oh, I hurt their mom. Yeah. You know, I'm the one that decided to leave. I got you. So. They're, are they holding it against you to the point where it's severely impacting your relationship or they're just kind of mm. pissed at you? Yeah, they're just a little pissed off. Yeah, it's not gonna... yeah I mean, obviously she's doing your website, so she can't be, uh, can't be too bad. But uh, um, So now you're going to buy, buy a fifth wheel um, and basically just kind of travel the country, promote the book. Is there anything else bucket list-wise or career-wise, like what, what you want to do from now on? Or Yeah, I just want to surf more, mostly. Yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, asking team guys what their bucket list is. We've got to do so many, yeah. so many cool things. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have it. 
there are some things I, I'd like to do, you know, travel. I like, I like to see the, uh, um, like, ancient civilizations. Yeah. I like to go see the ruins of a lot of those places. Yeah. I've always been interested in that. That's cool. Um, well, just have fun. You know? Yeah. I'm almost, you know, looking at 50 years old. I can probably be in halfway decent shape till about 70. Yeah. If I don't die. Yeah. We'll spend the next so. 20 years enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I know we've been talking about it for a while. Uh, I appreciate you making the time to drive through the night to come uh, come here and, and share your story. It's an amazing one, to say the least. Uh, and I think it paints a, a very uh, accurate picture of, of you know how hard the SEAL teams are on the individuals that serve their families, um, you know, and just kind of the, the collective that, that makes up the community. Um, you know, your story is for sure way above and beyond what most guys have been through, uh, which, is, you know, is saying quite a bit. Cause I'd like to differ there. I know people that have been shot in the head. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that have lived to tell about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, they actually did. I know two people that shot in the head and went through their brains and they're alive now. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's two people out of 7 billion, I guess is my point, but, your story is for sure fascinating. Um, I'm looking forward to the book coming out. I can't wait to read it. Uh, June 9th. Um, remind the, the folks of your website again. Uh, perfectlywounded.com. Perfectlywounded.com. Uh, go check it out. Support them. Uh, check the book out. Uh, lots of other good stories in there, I have no doubt. Uh, anything that you want to add before we wrap it up? No, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And uh, as we wrap up here, I want to take another minute to thank our sponsor, uh, which is Origin Labs, uh, Origin USA, Jocko Fuel. Origin Labs makes all of Jocko's products. Uh, they make a line of their own products as well as boots, geese, uh, jeans. Uh, and they've got some stuff coming down the pipe, uh, hopefully, that, that I'll be able to tell you about here shortly. But they've been a, a great staunch supporter of the podcast. Can't thank them enough. Uh, I take a lot of their products uh, and stand behind them 100%. So um, all-American made, uh, huge veteran supporter company, and, and just a great group of guys. So uh, thank you to Origin Labs. For you guys, the listener, um, as always, I want to take a quick minute to just say thank you. Uh, you know, I've been doing the podcast now for right at about two years. Uh, it'll be two years this month, later this month. And uh, it's been a... A truly remarkable journey for me, one that I didn't know what to expect, but uh, you guys, the listeners, have continued to humble me with your support, and uh, and I just can't tell you how appreciative and grateful I am, so thank you for listening. Uh, Mike, thanks again for coming. We've got a lot of good podcasts coming up, uh, guests coming up over the next uh, month, six weeks, and look forward to bringing, uh, bringing all those stories to you. So uh, again, thank you, and until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. 
UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen.